Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. And Trinity Rep, celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years, March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. I'm Jim Browdy, head of Boston Public Radio. We're live today at the Boston Public Library. Over at Fox News, Tucker Carlson is beginning to shape his alternative fact version of the violent January 6th insurrection, thanks to footage handed over by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We'll open phone lines. How do you navigate a world insisting on two truths, the one supported by reality and fact, and one supported by MAGA World's ringleader, Tucker Carlson? I'm Marjorie Egan, Venice Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox for his first ever appearance on our show. We'll talk about the direction he's taking the Boston Police Department from city crime rates, staffing shortages, and police reform during his first six months in office. Later, we'll have live music from Grammy-winning superstar fizzling sensations Maggie and Mark O'Connor. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Whoops, that was a little loud there. Move the microphone a little bit further away from my mouth. Good morning, Jim. Oh, I should say, I should say, as I always say, that we are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. We are. Yes, we are. And we are streaming on YouTube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. How are you? I'm a little nervous, you know, a little disorganized over here. What are you a little nervous about? Well, I just, my microphone was too close to my mouth. Yeah, I was blasting the, the listeners here at the, yeah. uh, at the uh, library. But other well, than that, I'm, I'm fine. Well, I'm nervous, too. Okay. So last night, Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired, quote, new footage from the January 6th riot, using it to downplay violence and further the narrative that everything you've been told about the day's events by mainstream media has been a lie. They were peaceful. They were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously revere the Capitol. Yeah, they revere the Capitol so much that four people were killed that day as they broke windows and doors defecated inside of the Capitol, according to then-Speaker Pelosi. Three law enforcement officers died in the days after this insurrection, two by suicide. So is this just the latest attempt at a coordinated effort to alter reality? Carlson downplayed the violence and, in doing so, offered his millions of viewers a chance to push back on all the work of the January 6th committee, which last year presented a clinical and forensic accounting of the day. The phone and text lines are open at 877-301-8970. How do we confront this? The alternative facts movement, if we can call it that, is growing in power and coordination. Do we just ignore it because we know it's not true, or do we confront the people in our lives we know are buying and spreading these insidious lies. As I said, 877-301-8970. One of the other things he said last night, Marjorie, uh-huh. was, this is a quote, the protesters were angry. It's clear that the 2020 election, this is last night, it's clear that the 2020 election was a grave betrayal of American democracy. This from Tucker Carlson, whose text we uh, received last week, based on depositions in the Dominion thing in which he calls Sidney Powell a liar and she's insane. 
agrees with his producer that it's reckless demagogues who are criticizing the results of the election. It's really unbelievable. Well, you do wonder. I think a lot of us uh, underestimated the power of of the right wing uh, media. I Not mean, you. No, I've been on the cru- crusade for for a long time because people in my family, much to my shock and dismay, have bought uh, a lot of what they say. But I, I think what's really scary now is that they are in the middle, as you say, of this lawsuit against Dominion, which they uh, Dominion has filed against them, rather, uh-huh. which they may lose, and they've been caught red-handed saying one thing to all their viewers whom Tucker Carlson calls good people. He says our viewers are good people. Saying one thing to them, but knowing something else to be true. And continuing to do it. He's continuing this. And he knows perfectly well. I mean, he talks about the uh, QAnon shaman guy, you know, that the cops were just escorting him around. Now, you remember the pictures of the QAnon shaman? He had uh, no shirt on. I remember quite well. He had horns on his head. Uh His face was all painted. He had this weird outfit on. He looked like he was rather an unusual character. Not a particular at what you what you call a typical tourist or sightseer in Washington D.C. The idea that he was just kind of being escorted around the Capitol, or the idea that these people were just taking these wonderful selfies of themselves outside Nancy Pelosi's office, or the idea that uh, Officer Sicknick, who uh, had a stroke uh, the day after this insurrection, uh, he, after he sprayed with that uh, bear, uh, bear spray, spray or whatever, yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, uh, whatever it is, you know, he 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 says that, that really this was one thing. This is Tucker Carlson saying one thing was not related to the other thing. But the rioters who attacked Sicknick, one of them pled guilty. He's doing six years in jail, and the other guy did five months in jail. So if they didn't do anything to Officer Sicknick, why is one of them sitting there pleading guilty to six years in jail? And by the way, 999 people are facing federal or, or local charges about January 6th. You so, like Trump? Did you see what Trump, I was going to say, tweeted? He truth-socialed last night after the uh, no, videos social? came out. Let the January 6th prisoners go. They were convicted or are awaiting trial based on a giant lie, a radical left con job. You know, the, I asked you uh, right after the Dominion stuff came out a couple of weeks ago, in which all three of them, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, they are all, privately admitting yes, the election was, was not fair and not, square. And I said, are they reporting it on Fox News? The answer is no. Not only are they not reporting it on Fox News, they're doubling down. If I'm the lawyers for Dominion, and even after this stuff comes out, Tucker Carlson continues. The, the brazenness is unbelievable. So the question for today really is, uh, what do we do about this? Do you just ignore it and say there is a parallel universe? The unfortunate thing is the parallel universe got 75 million votes in the last election. Uh, uh, that's one. Or do you try to reason with people and talk about facts? Was it Arthur Brooks who was with us? A yes. couple of weeks ago, what was his position well, his on position trying to convince people of the error of their ways? To, that you, sh- you shouldn't. That you should try to find common ground and that you should have conversations with family members and friends about things that you can uh, agree on and that presenting people with facts doesn't work. And no, it's even worse. If you present them with facts, they dig in even deeper. Right, they dig was, in even deeper. Yeah. It's kind of like a cult. It's like when people it's used like to talk cult. about the Moonies, you know, the, their, their, their son. I remember this happened to me when I was in college. Uh, uh, there were, this guy I knew in college, he was approached by this really beautiful woman at lunch, and you know he was all excited because he thought that, that this woman was making a pass mm-hmm. at him and invited him to dinner at her house. And then he gets to dinner at her house, and he realizes this isn't her house, it's some moony enclave. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in the hills outside of Palo Alto, and he had the wherewithal to get out of there. But that's what happens. People get indoctrinated into these cults, and I think this is what it's become. And I also think in certain parts of the country, uh, all you hear on the radio uh, is, I mean, there's NPR all around the country, but a lot of the AM radio that's still around or other stations that carry right-wing radio hosts, is that they echo uh, what Fox okay, has so, to but, say. Okay, but what are you saying? But, and I know I ask you the same question or variation on it all the time, and then we'll get to your calls at 877-301-8970. Does the average Fox News viewer not know that cops were attacked and beaten on that think, day, I and think, that two of them at least committed suicide within days of the insurrection. Do they not know that? What I suspect um, from what I've read is that uh, many people believe there were a few bad actors, there were a few violent people that day uh, that did most of these bad things. Of course, it belies the pictures of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people climbing up to the Capitol and going into the Capitol. Uh, you know, the, the gentleman, that, well, I shouldn't call him a gentleman, I guess, the guy that broke the window and they went through the Capitol, uh, they sure, got into yeah. the Capitol with him, the, the people that were there. It belies those pictures. But I think that's what, they think that the left has exaggerated this, that this was not as big of a deal as the left made it out to be, and people like Adam Schiff should just be discounted because uh, they're not telling the truth, and Eric Swalwell, the congressman, he's not telling the truth. I think that's, that's what it is. You know, and if one buys into the notion that we really can't change their minds and have to attempt to find common ground or whatever Arthur Brooks, and he's not alone. A lot of researchers have said the same thing, that they do dig in deeper if you present them as facts. Do you remember we had the guy on last week who was head of Media Matters, and he was talking about Tucker Carlson's January 6th narrative even before the tapes came out. And he speaks to the danger. This is what he had to say about uh, Carlson's allegations that the whole thing was like, at that time, a false flag operation, but left and what mm-hmm. the consequence of that is. We're specifically going to activate the very militias, um, militarized groups, militarized extremists that have sort of been waiting for the proof. Um, that, it, that it was a false flag operation. So, you know, I think that even though it feels more stable right now and the environment has sort of ratcheted down, um, that cauldron of extremism, hate, of violence is still simmering. Um, and it doesn't mean that we should be scared about it all the time, but it has, it's still simmering. And Tucker is about to raise that temperature a lot so that it boils over it. I mean, that's, uh, I buy it. I buy his analysis. This is just adding more fuel to the proverbial right-wing uh, denial insurrectionist uh, And you fire. know, it's, it's worth reviewing some of the words of former President Trump when he was at CPAC this weekend. And people have made the point that a lot of people didn't go to the CPAC uh, get-together mm-hmm. this weekend. Trump did. He was the headline speaker and his son uh, was there and the son's girlfriend was there. Um, but But Trump talked about, uh, these are some of the quotes he made speaking that day, that um, I am your warrior, I am your justice for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I'm your retribution. Uh, He claimed he and his followers are engaged in a struggle to rescue our country from people who hate it and want to destroy it. Then he listed the so-called villains and scoundrels. He and his followers would, quote, demolish, quote, drive out, quote, cast out, throw off, beat, rout, evict. This is the final battle. It's all this militarized rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how strongly uh, Trump will play in the, in, the, in, the, in the Republican primary. Some people think that Ron DeSantis is going to give him a big challenge. He won not... CPAC in a landslide. He did. He absolutely did. 60 to 20. And I think those people who have said that a crowded field of Republicans, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Trump, and whoever else might mm-hmm. join... 
that that Trump stands a very good chance of winning the nomination. Junior Larry again. Hogan, a moderate uh, a Republican, former governor of Maryland, who usually was one, two, three with uh, Charlie Baker in terms of yep. most popular governors, was contemplating running and decided, announced two days ago that he's not running. And the reason he's not running is because of his concern that you voice forever is about splitting the vote so that Trump is the nominee. Let's take some calls. Sean and Sharon, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Hey there. Uh, hey, how's it going? Good. So um, I just wanted to kind of, you know, first say that I'm not someone who's involved in, uh, you know, litigation or a lawyer, but I think that we're going to need some kind of a special law to protect against the spread of misinformation, particularly when it results in violence and death. And, you know, similar to the way that we have um, specialized laws that focus on hate crimes, um, you know, this intentional spread of misinformation that's leading to people being killed and uh, people being marginalized and people being, you know, attacked um, should have some kind of repercussion that's, you know, specified for that. Well, you're basically and saying I, just like you can't, the proverbial can't cry fire in a crowded theater, you shouldn't be able to spout misinformation that leads to violence and that sort of behavior. I mean, I know you know this, Sean, but that that's a pretty tricky thing about who decides what crosses the line, what misinformation is provocative enough to be violative of such a law. So, I mean, you know, in the abstract, it's fine, but I think operationally, it's a pretty tough nut to crack. Sean, thanks for the call. Well, the the place where they are going to get hurt is that, I hope, is the defamation of the Dominion voting machines, because that's a specific slander against a specific uh, uh, entity, and when they knew uh, with malice of forethought, as it were, that that wasn't true, what they were saying about Dominion, but just basically spouting off about, you're right, about the January 6th, it's not going to get them them anywhere. Uh, Listen to to this from Emily in Rhode Island. I think this is so true. Uh, It comes down to fronting, confronting people in your own circle. When you talk about how uh, the news is fake and they're lying on Fox News, what I often hear back is, well, they're all fake. They're all crooks. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all making things up on CNN. And then I say, well, what, what, what are they making up on, on CNN? And they'll talk about how you know, the Hunter Biden thing or something like that. But the difference, there's a difference between making a mistake or reporting a story that isn't fully fleshed out and then going back and fixing it a day or uh. two later. And knowing that you're lying and just doing it anyway. So anyway, what she says, the only way to convince anyone now, it seems, is to walk them through the facts by the hand as though they're children. By the well, way, have you done that with your relatives you keep discussing? Have you walked no, through the facts? I, I've sort of given up. You and, have, yeah. And we talk about, isn't the weather nice? And it, it's very sad because you can't, you have to be constantly on your guard. And, you, you know, these are people you love. And you don't want to ruin the relationships. On the other hand, um, when you get to anything even close to climate change or politics or fake news, it just it, you just can't win. But this is really dangerous. I mean, I, I am totally with the guy from Media Matters. This is really dangerous. I mean, this is this is no kidding. It's not just you know what it is. It's 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 like Putin in Russia lying about what's going on in Ukraine. And you know what? They and we have a so-called free press here, but. Um, People over, many people in Russia are convinced that they're over there, the Russian soldiers are over there losing their lives to denazify Ukraine. They're buying it. Because Did you see the great story the in the New York Times this morning about the guy that signed up, a Russian, five months later is dead, and how the body toll is mounting to such a point that maybe Putin won't be able to get away with his lies. Bernadette Nakar, you're next on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about it. 
how to deal with the, the deceit, the lies of Fox News and Tucker Carlson in particular. Welcome. Hi, um, I'm a, a longtime listener. Um, Thanks. And I, I often think about Michael Vick, who back in the day did terrible things with dogfighting. And when he got out of prison, the football player, he went on a, he went on a tour of um, the country to sort of say this isn't normal and it's not good behavior at all. Uh-huh. And I wish that there could be something like that with the people who are now getting out of prison for their uh, crimes on January 6th and who are going to get out. Because a lot of them, I think, are full of regret and shame and could do a lot to address the misinformation and the lying and all that other crap. Yeah, but the question, I, and I, I'm going to play Marjorie now because she's been proven to be right on this issue. When someone who was part of the insurrection and imprisoned and had a change of heart comes and talks about it, Tucker Carlson et al. is going to say they were paid by the left. They were paid. Well, this, what, they're, they're all. What, yeah, go ahead. What I think should happen to Tucker, Tucker Carlson, I can't say on uh-huh. the radio, but I do think that's what should happen to him because he is just like Putin. So I'm not going to say all that. And people no. are going to believe lies because they're ashamed. So it's maybe people who can hear from, you know, people who realize they were part of a cult for a little while um, and figured out how to get out of it or had to get out of it because they went to prison, maybe that could cut through some of it. I don't know. Bernadette, thanks. We appreciate well, your call. Aaron from Hopkinton has an idea about what should happen to Tucker Carlson. What does he say? He said Dick Cheney needs to take Tucker on a <laughs> quail hunt. <laughs> For those who missed that, he shot his hunting partner in the face. And listen to this. This is from Morrison. Inadvertently. Inadvertently. He didn't mean to do it. That's right. This is from Morrison, Maine. He's talking about uh, the activities at uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. He says... I always spray my tour guides with bear and pepper spray when I'm on vacation. <laughs> Listen to this one also. My father is one, this is not Simon, is one of the brightest men I've ever known, but his brain has been picked by Fox and One American Network, OAN. I tell him now I never want to discuss politics with him anymore. It's so sad because we're so close. I mean, it's a variation on your situation your is you don't want to deal with it, so you don't try to convince him, and you just let them continue to... All that stuff festered, And I'm no? so glad that texter texted because lots of people think, oh, no, if you, if, you, if you buy this stuff, then you are uneducated or you haven't read a lot of other things. Some of the people I'm talking about are the best-read people I know of history, mm-hmm. and they're very well-educated. So it's not – there was a great uh, uh, documentary that came out about 10 years ago about um, – My father, Fox, yeah. What was it called? My father was driven insane by Fox News or something like that. And there was another great story about a guy – whose father was a regular Republican, kind of a Charlie Baker Republican. He worked at, you know, someplace, Dow Chemical or something like that, and he retired. And in his retirement, he started watching more and more TV, and the TV was Fox Mm -hmm. News. And he said, one day I went over to visit my father, and I knocked on the door of my father's, and they were screaming and yelling at the television set about immigrants and and all these cabals that that are in crime all over the country and stuff like that. And he talked about how just watching that uh, station... And it's not just them, it's the echo chamber that mm-hmm. surrounds them. He said, 
sort of driven his father off the deep end. One of those is called The Brainwashing of My Dad. Was The, the name Brainwashing of, the... of My Dad. Thank you very much. We're talking about what to do about the increasing power, and it is very powerful across the country of the, white, the right-wing echo chamber, particularly that part of the chamber which outright lies. The number is 877-301-8970. You can stream us on youtube.com slash gbhnews, facebook.com slash gbhnews, and we are broadcasting from the Boston Public Library. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming on YouTube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. The Boston Police Commissioner will join us in just a handful of minutes, so stick around for that. In the interim, we're talking about the alternative fact universe with Fox News frauds like Tucker Carlson pushing lies about January 6th and the 2020 election, even after they were caught admitting that they knew it was all bogus. We're asking you how you deal with this. Ed, do you confront it? Or do you ignore it? And by the way, there is a great... This is not my thought. I can't remember the website I got it from. But on March 1st, here's what Tucker Carlson had to say about Biden administration people. And tell me what you take away from the quote. They're the most dangerous. Men with no principles but the desire for self-preservation. Hollow men who live in terror of being revealed for who they really are. Men who will do anything to save themselves. Who could he have been talking about, Marjorie? Uh, well, himself I think he was talking about himself. Well, you know, he went on that same diatribe to basically go about uh, go after men's masculinity mm-hmm. and how they were losers yep. in high school. He talked about Republican Congressman Adam Kinziger, who spent hang- high school hanging from the wedgie nail. I'm not. I know what a wedgie oh, is. I'm not sure what hanging from a wedgie nail is. But Eric Swalwell, he criticized him. You know, basically they couldn't get dates in high school. Adam Schiff couldn't get a girl to kiss him. In high school, so he's go, he talks about them as sad, insecure, broken men, filled with envy and bitterness from their lonely childhood. So he goes after that. If you're not, that's who he is. Is the only reason I read it. I mean, it, he's describing them, but it's a reflection of who he is. Did you know his mother was the heiress to the Swanson Food I did not know Empire? That. I did not know that. Or be eating that again. All those Swanson uh, things you ate as a kid between the sweets and the chicken and all that kind of stuff, Jim. Did you? I didn't even that? wait for the uh, TV dinners to. Defer- Frost before I ate them when I was a kid. Let's go to Han. Hold on, hold on one second. I just want to read this one real quick. Rebecca and Redding. Funny, you two rail against Fox News when my father regularly complains that I've been brainwashed by Jim and Marjorie. You've made a good choice. Han and Air, you're next on Boston Public Radio. What's up? Yes, uh, uh, I think a lot of times you guys have to just put the mirror because uh, you're talking the same thing as everybody else is. Uh, you go against Fox News, but yet you're doing the same thing. How so? Sorry, there's a bad echo. No, it's okay. How so? Um, Tucker Carlson, people, you want to hear some of the text? Hey, Han, Han the difference I'm, sure is, you've, I'm sure you've heard basically some... Basically, that they're lying. That, that's the difference, I, I think. Why, I don't think we've why, been... Why are, why, why, why are they lying? Why can't you believe what they're saying? Because we have text. Excuse me, they've admitted it. We have text from uh, Tucker Carlson in which he describes the people 
who believe what he is talking about is reckless demagogues. He calls Sidney Powell, one of the chief lawyers of Donald Trump, a liar. She's insane. That's the same guy. Who you're no, no, sa- I, I'm not talking about Sidney Powell. I'm talking about the, the January 6th. And what did you think happened on January 6th? Sightseeing? what he said. Think about it. Yes, sightseeing. All right, there were, don't get me wrong, there were some people that were bad actors. Yeah. All right? But Officer Signick was not killed by a protest. He died the next day. Han, Han, it's a straw man. Nobody said he was killed by a protester. They did say that he was sprayed, uh, pepper sprayed or bear sprayed by a protester. And and he had a stroke later on after the protest was over. But his family certainly believes that the stroke was brought on. He was a young man. The stroke was brought on. The blood cot was brought on by his getting attacked by a guy who's got six years in jail. And also, two cops committed suicide later that week. That was just a coincidence, Han? What? Why did they kill them? Goodbye, Han. Thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Well, I mean, the the problem with the sightseer theory is that when you have 999 people in an event facing federal or local charges for violence, you can't kind of say that was a sightseeing tour, can you? Well, Han is saying it's a sightseeing tour. Cicely, you're in Cambridge. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Cicely, what's up? Uh, hi, uh, Jim and Marjorie. Can yeah. you hear me okay? We can, perfectly. Um, basically, I was wondering if you think that the fairness doctrine could be restored, which was uh, regulated the media, required presenting both sides, and was repealed under Reagan yeah, it was. as a way to address this situation. Because my understanding is that that's when right-wing radio exploded. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair uh, description. I don't. You know, we can actually ask. We have Carl Rose joining us at twelve thirty today, the head of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. And there's a. I would assume there are First Amendment problems with the Fairness Doctrine, but I may be wrong. So stick around, Sicily. Listen no, to the. Sh- I don't believe. I don't believe it was repealed for that. Reason. No, I know it wasn't. I know it wasn't. I'm just saying now, reinstituting it. I think may have First Amendment implications, but stick around at 1230. We'll ask Kyle Rose about it, and you'll get your answer. It's a good question, and thank you for uh, posing it. We appreciate it. Do you have any more good texts? I don't think so. I think we do, but I can't read them all. We're out of time. We are. We are out of time. Okay, up next, we are very excited because we're going to have our first visit from the new uh, Boston Police Commissioner. Michael Cox is with us next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library, streaming on YouTube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan and Jim Bradley. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming on YouTube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. We're now joined at the Boston Public Library by the relatively new commissioner of the Boston Police Department, Michael Cox. Commissioner Cox, pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being here, Commissioner. So you've been here now, I think, seven months, right? Uh, about that, yes. About seven months? Yeah. So you sorry you came back, or are things going okay, or what's the deal? You know, Boston is my home. I'm never sorry to come back home. Uh, it, it's a wonderful city. It's a wonderful city to grow up in. It's still a wonderful city. 
And so I, I would never say I regret coming back in any way, shape, or form. What has the first seven months been? Not seven months in a week or so. What's the first seven months been like for you? Uh, it's, it's been a lot of things. It's been a whirlwind. It, it's, it's been overwhelming in some ways. It's been supportive in others. It's been challenging in, in other ways. Uh, it's been, you know, this is not an easy job, you know, that, that I uh, signed up for. But the people who do the work here are tremendous, and the people who live in the city are, are even better. And, um, you know, I, and so I'm blessed in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, I, I've never run from challenges in general. And so I, it, it's, each day is a, it's a new day. And uh, I'm learning quite a bit and hopefully not making a lot of mistakes. But I do know uh, we're doing all we can to make this the safest city in America, which I think it might already be. And, um, you know, we're going to continue to do all we can to make sure we build trust with the community and make sure people understand that we're here to serve the residents of Boston. You know, uh, Commissioner, I've read uh, and heard you say a lot uh, talking about restoring or creating this trust relationship. You've talked a lot about community policing. Commissioner Gross talked about community policing. Commissioner Evans, both of whom were on our show, talked about community policing. How does how you envision it differ from what your predecessors talk about? Well, so I don't know what they talked about with you. I can tell you what I... Sure, (laughs) please. You know, how I define it. I mean, community policing is about building trust. Building trust with the community uh, in in multiple ways. And and you can do it in a variety of ways. Because in the end of the day, when you have trust, you know, with the people you serve, if you have trust with the people who work in your, your department, when you have trust with all the partners that you have in the city, it's a safer city. No, no doubt about it. It's a better city in every, every way possible. And so, you know, we're trying to, you know, challenge and actually develop and make sure officers understand that we're here to serve the public and that we're here to partner with the public to solve whatever problems and issues that there are or at least contribute to solving every, whatever problems there are here in the city, uh, you know, whether it's crime, whether it's fear of crime, and, and all the things associated with it. So if that means playing basketball with, in, in mm-hmm. a community where... That's how you build trust. That's what it means. If it means, you know, certainly if it means locking people up who do heinous things immediately so people understand that we're here to, to keep them safe, that, that, that we'll do that as well. If it means, you know, actually educating people on ways to stay safe and, and, and understand, I mean, coaching up folks to understand that if they can contribute and help keep the city safe, that we're all safer in that way too. So it means a variety of things depending on, you know, What's going on? You know, when you said a minute ago, Commissioner, yeah. locking people up when, it, when it's merited, you know, the one DA ago, Rachel Rollins, won a landslide, she's now the U.S. Attorney, on a platform that I think most voters could repeat, which was that there were 15, quote, minor crimes, comparatively speaking, according to her, that the default notion was they wouldn't be prosecuted. Not in every case, but generally wouldn't be. Kevin Hayden has said he wants to treat things on a case-by-case basis. Do you subscribe to the Rollins' view of uh, arrests and prosecutions? So unfortunately, I, I, I subscribe to the thing that I think police, we also enforce laws. We don't make them. Right? That's somebody else who makes the laws, and it's up to us to enforce them. But there's a community that plays a role in this because they're, they're involved with you know, making those laws in the first place mm-hmm. or at least putting people there. We should be listening to the, you know, the people we serve to figure out which laws that we should prioritize. Right? We have more laws than we can ever enforce. I mean, we have more laws than you name it, we have a law for it. That's not the issue. The issue is we only have so many resources. How do we go about using those resources? And which, which laws do we prioritize? And that should always be based on the citizens that live here, the people we serve, not based on 
police, which we've traditionally said, hey, these are the laws that we're going to enforce, mm-hmm. right? With no input from the community, and therefore you get accused of over-policing sometimes, under-policing other times. And, and that's why we are, it's, it's central that we keep the public first. Well, very briefly, if I just can, if 70% of the people embraced the people, not the police, embraced the Rollins view. So would you not say the people have spoken on what they want prosecutor in our? So, you know, one of the good things about, I don't know, I wasn't here for that. Okay. I, I do know that we need to have a personal relationship with the community we serve. And those relationships change over time. They might change from week to week, month to month. Mm-hmm. That's why we always need to engage the public. Because the world evolves and we need to evolve. And so as long as, uh, you know, we're engaging the public and hearing from them on a daily basis, uh, you know, then I'll make sure that we're on the right side of those decisions. You know, Commissioner Cox, you know, I've been around for a long time. And one of the continuing problems with the Boston police is is you don't get the sense that the police respond to the public when the public does have legitimate uh, concerns. After the George Floyd protests, the Boston Globe did a series of stories about people who are high earners in the Boston uh, Police Department. And and one of them was a guy who was nicknamed Pepper Jack. He's had 20 investigations against him since uh, 1993 in these most recent protests after George Floyd. Uh, he was caught in these videos um, knocking a, a seemingly peaceful protester the, to the ground, ripping a protester's sign, pepper spraying somebody. I guess that's where the nickname comes from. That the 20 investigations since 1993. Then in 2004, he's accused, and apparently uh, the charges were substantiated of of, of double dipping. You know claiming that he worked details when he didn't in 17 different instances. And then we find out in 2020 that he's one of the highest-paid cops on the, on the beat with making $350,000. So the public sees that and says, um, why is this gentleman still on the force, even though there are some in the community who, who defend him? Should a police officer with that many investigations and, and double-dipping and all these things still be on the force? That doesn't do much for trust, I don't think. Well, I mean, the way you described it, it doesn't sound that way, right? I, I don't have the facts as you have them in, in, in each, uh, in particularly in that particular person's yep. case. So is it, I don't think it's appropriate for me to comment on someone that I don't know the information on. I think there's far too much, uh, too many comments on things when people aren't informed, and I'm not going to That's what we do that. for a living, <laughs> Commissioner, so it's... Right. Yeah, okay. so, and that's part of, I think, my job is to address uninformed, you know, comments, to address... Uh, Things that are put out there that are supposed to be facts are not necessarily facts. Uh, one thing about this job, and, and I'm not speaking to that individual because I don't know those yeah. facts. I'm not dismissing what no you're one saying. Dis- no one disputed it as far right. as I know. Right. It, is that this is a job where you come on and, and you know, the average length of time someone's here is 32 years. And we engage the public every single day for the most part during that period of time. It, it, high, high number of contacts with people. Um, and, and let's face it. Certainly, uh, what we do nowadays, it, uh, it brings out the emotions in almost anyone, whether you like the police or don't like the police. And you can bring any complaint against any officer at any time for any reason, and it stays on your record for the lifetime that you're on this yep. job. So you can look on someone's record and it looks like, they, oh, they had, they had 16 complaints over a 32-year career. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. You have to go to each particular case. You have to look at what they did, why they did it, and all of it. You know, the reasoning behind it. You can't, sometimes you just can't lump up the mere fact that we keep records and track of every complaint that sits there and never goes away on someone's record. Yeah. And then say that's who that person is as a person. So, but that doesn't 
answer what you were trying to put out there. Right? Um, I, I think it's important that people understand that uh, I, I don't think there's a correlation between are you a good officer or between how much you make. On this particular job, particularly when we're down in numbers, uh, there's forced overtime. I mean, you know, the salaries are, you know, negotiated through a union thing, and so I don't, I'm not going to speak to that issue. But the fact is, officers are paid, you know, with, to a negotiation. And then if we're short officers, they have to work. And then you can work additional, you know, things, whether it's through details or overtime. I don't think anybody should be penalized because of the fact that they work. Yeah. Right? They're working 16 hours a day, and that would reflect in the money that they make. And so I just like to put things in perspective as opposed to, you know, saying, well, look at this person making all this money or what have you. Well, the fact is, if you're a, a, you know, a working officer, whether you go to court all the time, whether you're, you know, you're out there, you're out there on the streets. And I, we want good officers, but we also want officers that work and want to work and want to serve the public. And, and so I, I can't usually speak to anecdotal <laughs> examples okay. of stuff, but I can try to explain <laughs> some of the background behind certain things when people ask me questions. We're talking to Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox. Well, one more thing uh, uh, along these lines, and it's something that Mayor Wu has talked a lot about. Um, she's concerned that too many fire police officers, and we talked about this uh. with Commissioner Evans as well, uh, get back on the force through arbitration. Uh, she, according to her, one-third of the uh, Boston police officers get back on the uh, uh, Force and sometimes cost the city a lot of money because there are civil suits against them. There's one particular officer that you do know because he was involved in a case against you back in 1995, accused of beating uh, you when you were a police officer, and he didn't realize apparently you were a police officer. And he was also involved in an allegation of of choking someone, and that is the case that cost the city 1.4 million. Do you think that Wu is right in the part of the police reform that we should move from uh, uh, taking firings out of arbitration and using the civil service? commission for police officers um, who want to appeal their firing? I think if we fire somebody, they should stay fired. I absolutely believe that. Um, I think over, over a long period of time, uh, uh, arbitration awards have, you know, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, have, have far been too generous to uh, certainly police unions and representation about you know, these individuals about coming back on. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, I think we also need to own the fact that we need to do better investigations to make sure that they stay fired, to make sure that we're contacting the people appropriately, making sure we're documenting things along the way so it makes it easier or, or a whole lot harder for an arbitrator to rule against us. Um, sometimes it's, it's easy to cry, oh, my gosh, look what they did if we didn't do all the things yeah. that we were supposed to do in the first place. So that's why I think it's important that we do all the things that we're supposed to do to document um, at least the behavior that we think uh, an officer that should not be working here has done, and then make sure that we go about proving that on a daily basis. You know, speaking of investigation, we're speaking of Michael Cox, who is the relatively new six and a half months commissioner yeah. of the Boston Police Department. One investigation that apparently is continuing on your watch is uh, this guy, I may mispronounce his name, Joe Abassiano, who was a cop who was at January 6th. Um, what has called Mike Pence a traitor, is on medical leave since 20 days after January 6th, two years ago, and is living in New Hampshire, but was well enough to come to an anti-vax rally. We did a little research, and virtually every law enforcement person, we've mentioned this to Mayor Wu almost monthly, almost every law enforcement person who was involved in January 6th had their case resolved all across the country. The one exception we can find is this man, 
who now were two years and two months into post-January 6th. Uh, um, can you tell us what the status of this investigation is and why he hasn't been fired? Uh, well, well, I guess you're assuming that it, you know, not only was investigated, but it was sustained against the person. Could you say well, maybe you'd say that it, it wasn't sustained. I don't know. But what is the yeah. status of this? Well, so I would imagine that it will be relatively um, finished up here soon. It's not. And so I'm not going to comment on certain some, something pending beforehand so we can have a reason for someone to arbitrate against us or things of that nature. Um, but, you know, I, I, I will say this. It's, it's, you know, either an officer belongs to the job or they don't. And our job is to make sure that we investigate and do all we can to separate the ones that don't belong here. And we need to do that and we need to prove it. Like us, our organization, like many other organizations, have people that make mistakes. And if they make a mistake on this job or any other job, the expectation is that you're you know, disciplined appropriately, then you come back to work and you get almost a free slate. So you're welcome back so you can have a successful career. That applies to police as well. And, and so I think that's important for people to understand that in order for us to have a vibrant workforce, we have to have the ability to have our officers not have something hanging over their shoulder when they've hopefully learned from the mistake, been disciplined for it. So they're allowed to move on and actually have a, uh, go on to have a great career. Okay, I know you don't want to comment on the contents, but I just want to... Uh, Mayor Wu said a couple of weeks ago, ask me next time you're on. She's on in a week. You seem to be saying whatever the resolution is in this case, it's imminent. Is that a fair statement? I mean, all you know, things come to an end, right? You, you, is this going to come to an end soon? You, I, I would imagine it will come to okay. an end. Right? Yes, absolutely. We're talking to Michael Cox. Yeah. You know, Marjorie mentioned just for one second. Well, you continue, Marjorie. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just going to ask you. There's a debate about police officers in schools. You know, a lot of people think it's a bad idea to open up possibilities of over-policing. Other people, like one of your pressers, Bill Evans, said when you were talking about before uh, building trust in the community, mm-hmm. kids playing basketball with police officers, kids having fun with police officers, kids knowing a police officer from their school, um, it could be a good thing. So what do you think about police officers in schools? I, I think police officers in schools has always been a good thing for the most part uh, that it's existed. I think people might have memories if they ever encounter police officers in schools, usually a positive memory, whether someone's being taught something about you know, drug awareness or, or just officer-friendly programs. Uh, and I give an example. When I was in Ann Arbor, there was a program that they had there. They had been doing for 40 years. And there were adults, you know, fairly old adults, saying that all they remember is this positive experience they had was a police officer in kindergarten teaching them how to ride a bicycle, safety oh. skills, getting them, you know, helmets on, on this and working with kids in school. That stayed with these people throughout their whole life. So, yeah. you know, this whole imagery of you know, police are here to do something bad doesn't exist in those folks because for the most part, the only, you know, um, and this is for most people, the only contact they ever had with a police officer was positive at an early age before the biases of the world creep in there and change someone's view of a profession uh, forever and ever. You know, so I'm a person of color. I've been this way my whole life. If that's a shock to you all, right? We didn't know that. (laughs) If that's a shock to you all. But the reality is, is, you know, I've lived in this this is certainly the city, the world, the state, the country, my whole life, and it had bad, some bad experiences by perception. You know, people may, when I was younger, certainly as a young African-American male, made people feel uncomfortable being in their presence. It didn't matter what I was doing or what happened. I just did because they were biased in some way, shape, or form. Well, I come on this job, and I know this job, you know, it's a tremendous opportunity to help people. We do 
outrageously great things, you know, to support and help people. And as a person of color, I come on and I the same language and imagery as a child that I felt as not as a police officer, but this is a regular person growing up. I hear that about police in general, yeah. right? I hear that about, oh, my God, we don't want them here because they don't make me feel comfortable. Oh, my God, I don't want them there because of, of you know, I'm triggered, right? And I get it. People are triggered by a lot of things. When my kids were little and they were afraid of the dark, I didn't say never walk into the dark again. Right? I, I tried to help them through it because in the end it was their issue. I tried to help them through it and let them know, turn the light on. You see, it's nothing to be afraid of here. There's nothing to be afraid of about policing. Policing being done now is better than it's ever been done in the history of policing. But the reality is the narrative that's out there is, is almost the opposite because of social media and things of that nature. When you have to scan the entire United States to find one example here or one example there, that is not a systemic problem. So you'd like to see cops back in the schools. Is that the one word? <laughs> that is your position, right? I would like to see. Sure. I, I mean, I mean when, I, when I say that, we have a role. I mean, if, if the schools don't want us there, we don't have any role. There, right? We should never be someplace where we're not wanted. Okay. But the fact is, I think we have value. You know, when you say a minute ago, uh, you were describing your experience as a, as a young black kid, and we should have introduced you by saying, for those who don't know you, you were on the force here for most of your life, and then you went to Ann Arbor, ran it there, you were hired to come back here and be the uh, commissioner here. It's not just anecdotal stuff. You were in Boston when the Supreme Judicial Court, the highest court in the state, made what I think is the most underreported decision I've ever heard in my life, is they said, if a young black man runs away from a police officer heretofore, you can draw a conclusion that he did something wrong. Their unanimous decision was, because of so much racial profiling by the police, seven to nothing, I think the vote was, if I remember correctly, you can no longer have that presumption. So it is, at least in this city, according to the SJC, historically it's broader than just a case here and a case there. Correct, Commissioner? Uh, I, I guess by your premise, you're saying that the law is saying that you can't chase someone just because they're running because they didn't do anything. I get that. It's not Absolutely. my premise. It's no. the SJC's. I, I get that. Yeah. 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 So, so what's the question? On that? I, I guess the question is it's not just an anecdotal case here or there that people cite. This is SJC saying there was essentially a trend that caused them to make, at least in my estimation, a radical uh, uh, conclusion. I mean, I think what you're talking about really was also connected to profiling. When you're not only profiling that, you run and chase somebody, but then you run and chase someone and then they add a weapon on them or something of that sort. And so that, that, that evidence couldn't be used because of the fact that they're saying, basically you were profiling people in the beginning and you got lucky because that individual happened to have a weapon and you shouldn't have done it in the first yeah. place. And you're right, and, 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 I, and I do agree. We should not profile in that way. You know, some, there's a whole host of people that could be running. In a few weeks, they'll have this whole street full of people running. As police, we shouldn't be running and chasing them just because they're running. But if you throw a whole bunch of other factors involved with that, then maybe that's something different why we might want to question somebody. You know, uh, you've been asked about a thousand times mm-hmm. about what Marjorie referenced in passing before, being beaten by fellow cops mm-hmm. when you were an undercover cop 20-some years ago. We're not going to go in depth into this, but... How do you think that experience, that was in 95, if I remember correctly, how did that experience shape who you are and how you act as the commissioner of the police department? Oh, man, it's, it's, it's hard to say it's how it shaped me because um, I've been shaped and I'm, and I'm probably always going to continue to grow and develop in some way, hopefully. Um, 
I will say this, is that it, it, I was naive in a sense that this job, you have the opportunity to help a lot of people. And I thought and it is honorable work, and I certainly thought it was honorable work mm-hmm. there. It opened my eyes to the sense that, um, you know, we can do bad things without supervision. You know, bad things can happen by individuals with good intentions if you're not monitored, if you're not developed, if it's not supervised and things of that nature. And then what I, what I also understood is that, you know, part of the culture of it is because sometimes it's an us versus them uh, environment. It, it's, you know, it's hard to talk about change, improve, and, 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 and things of that nature internally because the fact is there's so much external criticism, mm-hmm. right? And, and so I learned quite a bit uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, I, and for the most part, I dedicated my life to making sure from the inside out, how can you fix an organization to make sure, one, um, people understand truly the good work that's being mm-hmm. done there because that's important in order to attract good people and keep good people. You know, people need to understand the good work that we do and why we're here and who we're here to serve. And secondly, it, like any organization, we should get better and develop and grow. And this is a profession, and, and we should make sure that people understand that and internally make sure that we're always developing and growing and evolving as a profession. You know? and, in, and the last part is that you know, every person here needs to understand that we're here to serve the public, right? and, and, and we need to grow and develop, and, and, and the public's needs will change, and so we need to change. Policing has been very, always very slow to change, but the reality is, is that we need to always change in accordance to what the public needs, the city needs in that way. And change is not easy. It's not easy at all. And, and most people don't even understand what's involved in making change. And so that is part of, I think, my biggest role is to go through and make sure people understand that you know, we are a professional organization who's all, try, in the midst of trying to change to make sure that we are, adapt to what's going on. Let me just state the obvious. You're a bigger man than I am. That goes without <laughs> well, saying, Commissioner Gunn. Well, and wait, maybe. <laughs> no, in many more ways. I have some fan mail for oh. you, Commissioner. This oh, is, oh. Yeah, this is a text from Cindy Jackwith in Bolton, Mass. She says, I was good friends with Michael and his family in Dorchester. He's my top five listed people I know with the highest integrity. Wonderful, kind, thoughtful, smart, honest man. Boston is lucky to have him. He was also helpful during my adoption process can't say enough about him and his family. There you go. She's not related to you, you. is she? She is not. She's a wonderful person. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I haven't talked to her in many years. That's okay. good to hear from her. Big, well, you know, I wonder, we're almost out of time here, yeah. but just really quickly, it, it, I do think that, that cameras, cell phones, all this, these second eyes on police is a good thing for police, ultimately, I think. I, I think so, too. I think it's a good thing for, for everyone. I mean, we're in the business of trying to make sure people are safe. Cameras have a way of helping us identify people and actually solve crimes uh, without that bias that happens sometimes with individually, uh, you know, identifying people uh, without, you know, photo or cameras and things in in general. Okay, well, thank you very much for being here today. We really appreciate it. We hope you come back. Well, if I'm invited, I will. I always go where I'm invited, invited. right? Yeah, (laughs) and you should come here because it's a very swank operation This is a beautiful location, yes. Newsfeed Cafe over there. And and a wonderful, astute audience. That's right. I I like them the the best. (laughs) That's right. Thank you very much. We appreciate you very much coming. Thank you very much for having me. We've been speaking with Boston Police Commissioner and Chief of Police Michael Cox, and we very much appreciate him coming in. Coming up next, we're going to talk with NBC Sports' Trenny Casey about a proposal to have the uh, baseball uh, 
the Fort Myers, whatever they call it, the Spring League, whatever they call it, the, what do they call it, Jim? Spring training? Move out of Florida because of Mike DeSantis, Governor DeSantis. I'm goofing that up. Anyway, you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7, GBH Broadcasting from the Boston Public Library. Jim Brownie, head on Boston Public Radio, live at the Boston Public Library. People living near Wellesley Sprague Park are fed up with a thwack thwacking of local pickleball leagues. So much so that one resident said her quality of life had been, quote, ruined. Trini Casey from NBC Sports Boston will join us to discuss the fast-growing backlash to the fast-growing sport in America. Then reaction from the ACLU's Cow Rose to an abortion drug getting yanked from shelves in Walgreens in red states that threaten legal action, and even in some states where abortion is still legal. I'm Marjorie Egan. The first time he played Nashville's Grand Old Opry, Mark O'Connor was just 12 years old. As a fiddler, he went on to win Grammys and play with the likes of Chet Atkins, Dolly Parton, and countless other American music legends. He'll join us alongside his wife, fellow Grammy winner Maggie, for live music Tuesday performance. Then... How far are we from a Ron DeSantis Make America Florida presidential run? Well, our CNN's John King. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Public Radio. He is Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. We are broadcasting live as we do every Tuesday and every Friday from the Boston Public Library. And we are streaming on youtube.com slash gbhnews and facebook.com slash gbhnews. Hello again, Jim. What did you think of that little taste they of Mark fantastic. and Maggie O'Connor? Yeah, we're going to hear even more in just a few minutes of these great performers. We're so excited we about it. We usually don't have live music on Tuesdays, only Fridays. We have a special treat today. Stick around oh, right before fantastic. 1 o'clock. They're going to join us. So the NIMBYs, not in my back. The NIMBYs are coming for your pickleball courts. We're joined now by Trenny Casey to get to the bottom of this. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Hello, Trenny. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Great to see you. Pickleball haters. Pickleball, yeah, that's Wellesley. right. Wellesley's cracking down. But before we get to Wellesley and the crackdown, I absolutely love this story because I'm not a fan of Ron DeSantis down in, in Florida. Makes two of us. And, and uh, a piece by Kevin Blackstone in the Washington Post argues that they shouldn't play. What do they call what they're doing in spring, spring training? Spring training. That they shouldn't be spring training in Florida, the ma- major well, baseball teams, because of the racism coming from the governor. He doesn't go so far as to say they shouldn't hold spring training there because he understands the logistical uh, nightmare of it all, right? Um, so you have the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. So half of Major League Baseball, including the Red Sox, hold their spring training in Florida. The other half hold their spring training in Arizona, which I suppose one could argue. I guess now they're okay. But that place too could quickly become inhospitable <laughs> to most people. Um, and, and so Blackstone's argument is that during the Jackie Robinson era, um, 
you know, many teams, including the Dodgers, who ended up moving to Arizona, um, didn't hold their spring training there because it was a place where, quite frankly, Jackie Robinson, who just broke the color barrier, wasn't allowed in restaurants and hotels, um, you know, even in certain, like, training areas, right? Like, there were all of these restrictions uh, uh, um, for black individuals, and so they made the radical decision to start training in uh, Havana, Cuba, which, of course, the relations at the time were very different, but it was a more, it was a more welcoming place for um, black Americans and black baseball players. And so Kevin Blackstone's saying, listen, I understand that, you know, base, Major League Baseball can't all of a sudden pull. I think there's like 14 teams um, that still train in Florida. You can't pull them out. Like, where are you going to go? And you have to have spring training summer. You certainly can't hold it, you know, at Fenway Park. But he does argue that maybe Major League Baseball should be more forceful and outspoken um, about some of the things that the DeSantis administration is trying to push through, whether it's the Don't Say Gay bill, um, pulling books from schools, um, not teaching African-American history in higher education, that instead of just silently sitting by um, as I large number of your players, while, while, while black players make up a small percentage of Major League Baseball, if you include Caribbean, um, so African Americans make up a small percentage, mm-hmm. but if you include uh, players from the Caribbean nations, it's 30% of all of Major League Baseball. And you're, you know, and Ron DeSantis is basically saying, we're not going to teach your history because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And so Major League Baseball should sorry for the pun, but step to the plate and make it known that they aren't going to stand by idly and watch this happen. You know, two comments on that. One, I did not know that uh, the Dodgers moved their training facility because they I had didn't Jackie Robinson. And boy, they changed history. And yeah. they deserve, obviously, you huge know, praise. But <clears throat> the second thing is, the only flaw... What's the name of the guy who wrote the piece? Kevin Blackstone. The only flaw in Blackstone's piece is he assumes that the owners of all the teams that train in Florida... Oh, yeah are upset by Ron DeSantis's policy. And if you look at other sports and outspoken sports, uh, um, I mean, we know, for example, the owners of the Red Sox are liberals because right. of positions they've taken. We have no idea what the other team's leaders right, we have are no like. Idea they may be the loving DeSantis's. Detroit Tigers owners are like, yeah. or the Washington you know, Nationals. What I don't know either, how powerful is the union in baseball? Unbelievably powerful. Very yeah, powerful. Well, there, there's an option, isn't there? Yes, but that, that's also, to Jim's point, um, baseball still is, uh, one, uh, much like the NHL. It, um, I, I mean, it's predominantly white. Uh, it's certainly more integrated than the NHL, but many of your – you have Latin American players and um, Caribbean players, but then you have a lot of white players. There's not a lot of African American players who play baseball and are on baseball rosters. In fact, I don't want to misspeak because I might be wrong – but I'm not sure that since um, Jackie Bradley Jackie Jr. Bradley Jr. Uh, left the Red Sox, I am trying to sure. mentally go down the roster. And I might be missing someone because you know the rosters it's a 40 man roster. But I'm not sure that they have a black player on their main major league lo- roster. Okay. So it, it's it's difficult, right? Because also in baseball clubhouses, having worked in baseball for 10 years, worked with teams exclusively for eight years. Um, it's a it's a very southern white mentality. Can I just put a damper on you? Because I loved what I mean. You got into this this morning when you were reading, and so did I. But then I thought about it more. Does the Santos even care if it hurts his economy? 
Who? What's the I, first yeah. corporation he went Disney. after? Disney. Disney. Yeah. And took away their self-government of their geographical area. Which I Disney's didn't know got to be one of the largest <laughs> revenue producers in all of Florida. I think his followers are so well, into you know, DeSantis, yeah. they don't give a damn what the consequences are. You know what I've been are. surprised at more, though, there hasn't been more blowback from other places um, about DeSantis in Florida. Well, you it, know, it's we, not like we've saw, like, remember in, 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 Car- in, the, in North Carolina, yes. in Charlotte, you know, yeah. the NBA pulled out, were pulling out sports events. Companies were threatening to leave. Um, I think Delta in Atlanta, when there were some things going on in Georgia, were very vocal about what, um, about the policies and, and, and taking a more liberal stance and being more, although I feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong because you guys cover the news every day, it feels a little bit like corporate America has backed off. Like, we haven't seen seen as much, uh, you know, and they're just press releases right at the end of the day, but sometimes those, those, uh, make a difference, but I don't feel like we've seen corporations speaking out as much about social issues as we did in the wake of George Floyd. No. And you also found that after January 6th, weren't there as corporations that said they were going to pull back from giving their support to people who were election yeah. deniers. That was quite Also short-lived. a lot of the corporations that said they weren't going to invest in Russia anymore after the invasion of Ukraine. Their words, t- uh, not in all cases, but tended to be far stronger than their uh, actions. Yeah. In any case, it's a nice notion. We're talking to uh, uh, Trenny Casey. So the, there was a survey of players, an anonymous survey of players in the NFL. And uh, you'll tell us what th- about the conditions under which they work. And out of how many teams are there, 30 or 32? There's 32 NFL teams. And what place did uh, our New England Patriots rank? 24th. How do you think the Crafts feel about <laughs> I, that? Um, did you guys see the Boston Herald's no. um, front, front page of the Boston Herald last week? What? Um, it was, and I forget what the, what the one word was, but it was like Kraft at, I think they grabbed the, the image from a Celtics game and his hands are extended and his, he's got like this spitting rage on his face. And there was a one word, and I can't remember now what the word was, but the headline was great. Basically, I mean, they're calling him cheap and saying, <laughs> so the NFLPA, let me tell you about this survey. The NFLPA, for the first time that I can remember and our football guys can ever mm-hmm. remember, they surveyed players to, to ask um, you know, questions like, um, uh, how do you rate the family room? How do you rate the way t- families are treated? Uh, at the facility, how do you rate the weight room, the trainers, the food, um, the air travel, all of these different aspects, right, that these guys have. The quality of life The quality issues. of life, essentially, because yeah. you're there oftentimes from, you yeah. know, six or seven in the morning until five or six at night, um, seven days a week. Um, if you're going in for training and stuff, like I would probably say nine months a year, right? Mm-hmm. And I was actually really surprised. Me too. That the Patriots scored so low. And there were things on there like they don't have a family room for for wives and girlfriends and children, mm-hmm. which I know to most so people seem like. So the moms are nursing the babies on the floor of the restaurant if they happen bathrooms. to come in with the babies. Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't have a lact. Like I don't know anywhere anymore that doesn't have lactation rooms for women. Like you can find a pot at the airport. Like, do you, you know, I know, I know Mr. Kraft doesn't fly commercial. <laughs> But you have to be aware of these things. Well, do the toilets and the showers work for the Patriots? Apparently, for um, some teams, I think they had they some <laughs> backups, but it wasn't as bad as everyone else. Um, I'm was trying a, to pull really up the exact. But it's pretty humiliating, isn't it, to be in the oh, bottom it's, third? Oh, it's awful. Quarter, I mean, something. especially for a team that is, I think, has prided themselves on having an owner as progressive. Um, and is player friendly at times, as we all assume Robert Kraft Wait, 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 wait. By the way, when you say as progressive, the last photograph I saw of uh, Mr. Kraft, as people like to call him, is Bob Kraft sitting with a politician, was sitting at a table at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump and the Japanese premier. Okay, so he's... 
Yeah, but he also hangs out with like that rapper guy too. I mean, <laughs> you know, and I think he voted for Joe. But I think he is someone, Mr. Kraft, with all due respect, Robert Kraft is someone who just likes being close to other famous people, I think he does. right? I think he's, that's a, true. he's a rich I guy who likes true. being around other rich guys. Um, yeah, they certainly true. didn't score the worst, but they had a lot of really low grades, like their weight room. And, and, and here's some of the things too that I didn't know. So they, their weight room apparently is outdated. Um, it's stunned. kind of cramped. Me their too. locker room is cramped. They say they're plane. And, and again, these are probably things that regular people are like, oh, poor you. Your private chartered plane isn't that comfortable. But imagine being a six foot seven, 320 pound lineman and you're sitting in essentially like a coach seat with the, with like the armrests <laughs> up. Like that's not comfortable for you. I mean, my husband's six four and we try to get extra room whenever we can because he's really uncomfortable on a plane. Jim, I'm sure you're the same way. You're a tall guy and your whole job is to perform athletically. So if you're flying from Boston or Providence, wherever they, I think they leave out of the Providence area. So you're flying from Boston, Providence area to Los Angeles to play the Chargers or Seattle to play the Seahawks or Denver to play the Broncos. You're talking about a four, five, six hour flight and you're, and it's like an uncomfortable, like it shouldn't be uncomfortable. You have gazillions of dollars, get a better new plane. You know what I thought was interesting too? They were talking about the Kansas City Chiefs and they just won the Super Bowl, yeah. right? And Patrick yes. Mahomes came out with his high ankle sprain and continued to play and won the game and stuff. Oh, they're trainers. Well, they talked about, they had a horrible rating, D minus for the trainers. And they apparently, the players say they're quote discouraged from reporting their injuries because they fear retribution for speaking up. So I will say this about the Patriots. Their training staff actually rated pretty high. I think it was A's and B's. So the actual personnel, it was more facility issues that were a problem. But to me, this is unconscionable. Like like the fact that we are still living, and this is the problem, by the way, with the trainer in Kansas City. He is a good friend of Andy Reid, who has been with him since the Eagles. I think the two have worked together something since like 1999 or 2000. So they're like best buddies. And so they don't feel that this guy's job is ever going to be in jeopardy. Whereas I think it was the Jacksonville Jaguars had a trainer where guys complained and complained and complained about the strength and conditioning program and how their injuries were handled. And he was immediately fired because obviously, again, you want your players to be in top condition. But if you're a player in the NFL, which is a brutal sport and what we know about head injuries and you are discouraged by your trainer from reporting any kind of injury because he's going to go to Andy Reid and maybe downplay it to him or say, oh, that guy's not tough enough. He can't gut it out or whatever it is. That can be long-term damage to that player. That could be a life-altering That could be a life-altering But weren't there people in the Patriots issue. like Ted Johnson who suggested that Belichick was in that school. Oh, was I'm sure. Not? I mean, I, I, I'm sh- I think that Ted does suggest that. I think it has changed. I think that at least there, it sounds like based on this mm-hmm. a survey that that, yeah. that mentality has changed. I mean... Meek s- Mill is the name of the rapper. Oh, yes, Meek Mill. Yeah. Texter. Well, I didn't come up with a texter. It's not so dude. cool. They don't have... Uh, um, at least they don't have rats, rats in the locker room. The Jaguars yeah. have rats in their laundry cards. <laughs> yeah, that would be upset. Um, what were some of the other ones? I had this article pulled up because no there were some really good... No vitamins or supplements for so the Bengals. That was why wouldn't you get that? Them? Was interesting That's to me. Pretty cheap. Well, the money is the, suppl- the supplements were interesting because you can get banned from playing if you don't know what you're ingesting into your body. So why wouldn't you want to go through every single possible safeguard to make sure that whatever your you know Jamar Chase, your the Bengals like best wide receiver Joe Burrow, like what if he takes something and he misses one ingredient and then he tests positive for steroids? Great point. And it really is this point where like you know these guys say this all the time. Well, I don't know. I was just taking a supplement i didn't know what i was taking 
but he really might not know what he's taking if the training staff isn't monitoring what they're putting in their bodies. Like the Cardinals are so cheap. And again, I know that these guys are all like league minimum is like eight, you know, seven or $800,000, but like you're there all day and this is a billion dollar industry. They make them play for pay for box lunches to take home for dinner after practice. And, <laughs> and the Bengals in the off season, when they're not in season and they come and they ask them to work out at the facility, there isn't even so much as like a banana or an orange for them to like grab before they work out. They have to bring in their own food. I mean, there are some really horrific things like, God, you're so, I mean, I guess that's why you're rich. Because you don't spend money on well, things that you think you don't have to. Well, I would say that's short money to make yeah, your players like, happy. I mean, I know like there's some like inflation, but I don't think bananas are going to like <laughs> set you back. So before we get to the pickleball blowback, which is what Marjorie and I are really interested in, Charlie Baker uh, started a new job on March 1st. And it seems to me from having read an interview that he did with USA Today, and by the way, we've, invented, we've invited Governor Baker to join us here. We assume he will soon. Uh, the primary issue is... The names, images, and likeness should uh, college athletes be employees rather than student athletes? That's the major issue of confronting him. Yes? And it was interesting. His, it's like it's what he didn't say to me mm-hmm. that stuck out. He, he didn't dismiss the notion that, that, that maybe there could be a way where some athletes in some sports are considered employees yeah, instead so of student-athletes. So, so it makes me wonder when you're talking about, let's be honest, there's two money sports, and it's men's, it's men's basketball and men's football, right? And maybe you could throw in, in some big-time college programs like women's basketball into that. And I wonder if some of those true, and in some places I think hockey, um, but really basketball and football are your two big money sports. I, you know, I wonder if you're, a cer- if you're at a certain revenue level, do they, does the NCAA then change things? And are you an employee of the school um, as opposed to a student athlete? And then your crew team, your track and field, your tennis, like, you know, those non-money-making sports. The problem, the one thing I wonder about that, and I, and I really, I read this really great article um, in New York Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago um, about NILs. And I guess the one thing that I... <laughs> I didn't really like think about is the trickle down effect. And it's not so much the trickle down effect of like, you know, if you're Anthony Richardson and you go to the university of Florida and you're this top tier quarterback and you're going to go to the NFL draft and you can sign all these deals, right? Or they they focus on this kid at North Carolina, a basketball player. So he comes in and like a Carolina blue Audi or something that he gets. And now he can get all of those things because he can sign um, name, image and likeness deals. What I didn't realize is that those donors and those boosters who used to have to try and lure players would then have to invest in the school. So they would maybe have to invest in a weight room or a classroom with their name on, like in order, like there were, there were more ways that would affect the entire student athlete body that is not happening now because basically these boosters and these companies can pay these athletes directly. So those sports that are, you know, if it's an inverted pyramid, the sports that are, you know, at the bottom, there's not that trickle-down effect anymore yeah. of the money sports coming at the bottom. in. How about the linemen who no one ever heard of who are blocking for Richardson, for yeah. example? I assume they're not making hundreds of thousands. Oh, no, of course they're million. not. Would that not create a little bit of resentment in terms of the you know, unfairness of it all? I mean, I don't know. Does it create resentment if there's a lineman blocking Aaron Rodgers? Aaron Rodgers makes $59 million a year, and you're a, a, a fourth-year lineman making $3 million? Yeah, well, these are college kids, though. You I mean, know? That's the only... I mean, I don't know. Um, I, 
I would think that you sort of understand the hierarchy of it all. It's probably frustrating. It's it's probably no frustrating than you or I or any in any industry. Like if you work for someone making more money than you. Yeah. Do. Well, let's just say you work for yeah. Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? And you know that the CEO and the CFO are making like I don't know. I'm just guessing twenty million dollars a year, and here you are, maybe a doctor within that, and you're performing heart surgery on someone. And sure, maybe you're making two million, but you're not making twenty million. And the reason they're making twenty million is because you're the one who's operating on the hearts that are bringing in all the patients, right? So I, I, I think that most people kind of understand that's just the way capitalism works. Let me just say, even though you said, uh, I don't know, Andrew Dreyfus, who just resigned as head of Blue Cross Blue Shield, paid himself a million dollars after the guy before him, remember we used to talk to Deval Patrick about this, yeah. was paying himself Eleven. $10 million yeah. Dollars yeah. a year. Clive Killingsworth. Cla- Cleve Killingsworth. Cleve Killingsworth. Very nicely done there, Marjorie, picking yeah. that up there. In any case, well, yeah, I have he, to say, he I, leave out of town. He went yeah, somewhere. he skipped town. Skip I don't town. mean he literally skipped town. Like criminally, he left town. <laughs> yeah. You know, one last thing about Baker. You got to give it to the guy. I'll I run mean, the Blue guy... Cross Blue Shield for nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred. <laughs> you read the last paragraph. I was going to try to find common ground. As no, I know, but you're saying yourself, he leaves a job where even though you do have to get the Democrats to go along with you, he pretty much mesmerized the Democrats. They went along with almost everything. Where you can say whatever you want, he's now got like a thousand egomaniacs oh, yeah. as his constituents, college presidents, the commissioners of the leagues. I mean, he got... Well, he, could not get, just... he could have done a consulting thing at, in a healthcare thing. He used to be, run Harvard Pilgrim yeah. and probably make millions of dollars a year. You've got to give it to him to jump right back into the fire. And I think... I, I mean, listen, maybe I've got rose-colored glasses on because I really like Charlie Baker. Yeah. Um, and I, I think he really genuinely cares having played sports at Harvard. I didn't know today until I read that article that his wife, um, gymnast, of Northwestern. Northwestern. Northwestern, two sons, two sons played yeah. division three football. So he clearly, I think has a passation for college that. sports and, and cares about the kids and cares about the overall. You know I think he's the best person to do this. About really Charlie do. Baker. Is there anything that he didn't know when you asked him a question? Is yeah. the governor mad? He's, He's one of the smartest, most detail-oriented, reads everything kind of people. I mean, and um, yeah, but I'm not sure I mean, the knowledge alone times. gets you spe- where you want to go when you're dealing with. Ego. No, but he Maybe also not. is really good. So I did a charity event with him yeah. um, last year for a, a charity called Good Sports and. He is just so well prepared that I was like doing a mic check and, and Sean, my husband was sitting at our table and Charlie walked right up to him uh, and said, Governor Baker and said, hi, you must be Sean. You must be Trini's fiance. And like, just kept talking to him. And he, he was gregarious and he could command a table and just bring you in. Like there's something, he's so charismatic and engaging that there's something about his personality. I think that allows him to sort of work with a lot of different people and, and maybe charm them into saying yes to it. Well, no one would have called him a charismatic or around against Deval Patrick, I should say. There was oh, a really? Re- oh, no, no, no. Well, he's not, he's I mean, not I guess a public speaker. Yeah. The way Deval In any Patrick case, was. can we get to what yeah, we no, really he's were great. talking he's about a, he's today? A great guy. The important yeah. thing is the the showdown in Wellesley oh. between the pickleball players. And in Falmouth. And in Provincetown. And in Provincetown. Between the pickleball what players. What all those places have in common? <laughs> and, the, uh, and the residents who are driven insane by the popularity as in pop, 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 those pickleball balls are driving them nuts. Okay, wait. Describe somebody... what pickleball is first for okay, the people so, who don't know. So pickleball, like it's, it's, it's really grown in popularity, uh, really had a boom during no um, COVID. So it's four people on a tennis court, but it's a much smaller, shorter court. And the rackets look like so probably something between a ping pong mm-hmm. and a tennis racket. And it's like you play, it's like four square with a, I don't I've never like played it. like a wiffle ball it. kind like, of thing. Yeah, yeah. So the, the sound, I guess, is annoying. I don't know. I've never... I've, Full disclosure, I've never played pickleball. Um, people seem to love it, but apparently it does make a lot of noise. Like the, the material that the ball is made with, it's not just like a, like the whoop, 
of a tennis ball, like it's more annoying. Like it does sound more like a ping a pong, kind of like thing, a whack, yeah. like a ping pong ball. But I have to say, I mean, do I still have the article pulled up? Because the first quote from this guy, I mean, like, listen, I'm sure it's annoying. I, I can't imagine, like, I know that I'm annoyed when the dog down the hall is barking all day. And I'm like, just get that dog a dog walker. Like, what are you doing? This dog has terrible anxiety. But you just turn up your music and you just sort of drown it out. And it's fine. This guy, you would here think. Here it is. That you want to hear like, This like, is a guy from Wellesley. His name is John grandkids Massini. His clutch. You have no idea how annoying pickleball can be, said in a phone interview with Emily Sweeney. It's loud. It's repetitive. I can't sit on my porch and read anymore. It's totally stressful. My quality of life has been ruined. The guy in Falmouth sold his house house. and moved. He said 50 to 60 people would show up every day with beach chairs and play morning, noon, and night. So that, I would say, could get a little annoying. Because (laughs) if you're showing up and it's like, let's be honest, you got beach chairs, you probably got a cooler. And if you got a cooler, you probably got a couple cocktails. And you got a couple cocktails, you probably have people getting a little out of hand playing Uh pickleball. So I can understand like a constant party atmosphere. You're just trying to like lay out in the sun and like get a little relaxation. I under I do understand the frustration. I just also hope you understand how ridiculous you sound when you're like, "Well, I can't believe you put a pickleball court Can in I my tell neighborhood, you, and I'm how with, dare you? I'm just trying to read on my porch. Like, I don't know, go to your back porch and put a noise canceling. They say these people in the story say when their windows are closed, they can hear they it. can hear the thwack. It's louder than thwack, a tennis ball. Thwack of the pickle ball. I, I mean, could, is it called a pickle ball? I guess I don't know. I, I think so. Either. I mean, I suppose you could put like. Maybe you could put rest- like time restrictions on it, or like a sign I don't up. Think like so. there's got to be something. People are playing around right? the clock. Pickleball. How many people in the audience have played pickleball? Yeah. Can you raise your hand? Well, look at all these. That's people. actually it's maybe a quarter. That's not wow. nothing. Wow. Is it really that loud? Is it that? It is. Well, this, they're all nodding. There's a woman in the front that's kind of sort of like sheepishly shrugging her shoulders. Are you saying, thinking yeah, of moving anytime soon or no, you're not? At least not now. Okay, She's like, no, I'm going to go play in Wellesley every day I mean, day think about it. If you're tracking the damn thing nonstop every second or so, it would drive you out of your it whatever. It would. It would. I th- but I think that there's probably like a common ground that we could all come okay, to. Um, well, I think the we problem is if you're living in Wellesley, you probably spent $2 million for your house. Yeah. I, I, suppose, I mean, I say this now and I laugh. but for your house. Yeah. Well, you could be. That's yeah. true. I, you know, and they, their taxes are probably high. So I get it. It's probably annoying. It's just when you read it and all of the other problems going on in the world and you read, you read this, you're like, really? Okay, yeah. before you go, that I'm not a big hockey crowd, fan. You, know, you can't trust them out there. You know? but yeah. is How are they going to do? Are the, are the Boston Bruins on the verge of being the greatest hockey yes. team that ever played? They may surpass the Montreal Canadiens, which I know would make fans in Boston happy because that's their arch nemesis. Uh, they may surpass them for the most wins in NHL ever. history. Ever. Like they essentially... In, Credit to Jim Montgomery, their new head coach, who said this the other day in an interview. He's like, I think we could go like five and fifteen and still get the number one seed. Like they had, they're like the fastest team ever to a hundred points. They do have a rough stretch here where they play Saturday and Sunday, I think, for the next five weeks, uh-huh. which is really tough back to back. And your key players, Brad Marchand, David Krejci, Patrice Bergeron, they're all in their thirties. Yeah. But I think it's going to give them an opportunity. Like I think they may not surpass. They do this if they rest guys. Maybe they won't surpass Montreal. But it would be a I think they could probably rest guys on those Sunday games, like give the veterans Sundays off, still be the number one seed. Well, they have the young have kid re- who just signed the $90 million yep, contract. Yep, David Pasternak. Pasternak, yep. yeah. David Pasternak. So, yeah, there's, um, I mean, it's, they have an opportunity to make history.
That's sort of they, I think I, I mean, for a while I thought the Celtics had a much better chance of making the NBA no Finals more. and winning a title, but now I'm more. I think that if we're going to have a parade, it's probably going to be the Bruins. So before you come back next week, can you go listen right to a pickleball match? Well, and report I will. Back? Tiffany Faison just texts me, and I wonder no. if she's texting me to say it was. I wonder if she's telling me she has a place in Provincetown. I wonder if it's really annoying and well, she can hear it at her house. Says really loud, really annoying, like a tennis ball on steroids. Wow. So well, maybe move them like to public, like public parks. I don't know. I mean, uh-huh. don't take it away from I, people. Go do your but... research. We'll see you next week. Oh. Goodbye, Trini Casey. <laughs> oh it's God, nice I'm to not see an you. Urban planner. <laughs> You're going to be by next week. Okay, Trini Thank Casey. You, Thank you very Appreciate much. We're speaking with Trini Casey, anchor reporter for NBC Sports Boston. That's right, Trini Casey. Coming up, we're going to talk with Carol Rose, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. We're going to talk about growing threats to abortion rights in America and a bunch of other ACL news. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. We are broadcasting live from the Boston Public Library. We're streaming on YouTube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browning and Marge Regan. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. Walgreens is pulling abortion pills in states where Republicans have threatened legal action, some 20 states, even though it's still legal in three of those places. We're joined now by Carol Rose, Executive Director of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, to discuss the latest push to restrict abortion access as a court in Texas challenges the federal government's decades-old approval of the drug used in medicated abortions, the most common way people terminate pregnancies. Carol joins us now. Carol, it's good to see you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Well, Carol Rose, thank you very much for coming in as usual. But before we get to what's going on with abortion rights, breaking news involving a Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court case on free speech, what's happened? Yeah, no, this is a really a good news story, and it is breaking news. So at 10 a.m. this morning, the highest court in Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, issued a unanimous ruling saying that when town officials tried to mute or silence and then remove a woman named Louise Barron in Southboro, who was standing up to talk about her concerns about the violations of the open meetings law by that very body, and they shut her down and then threatened to have her physically removed if she didn't stop. She sued and said, no, that's a violation of my constitutional rights to free speech and also to address an assembly under the state constitution. And the, and the ruling is so extraordinarily good. Um, it harkens back to John and Sam Adams and writing of the Constitution uh, and says things like, uh, you know, in, in, in we, uh, I just have to pull up a couple things because it's so great. Um, and it says that uh, these meetings, it's the kind of civility that we didn't have when we were criticizing the kings uh, during the times of the revolution. So if we're talking about history, and where our country came from, and where Massachusetts and the role that Massachusetts played. This is just an incredibly eloquent and historic opinion, leaning on the history of our freedom and our democracy, and here in Massachusetts, our state constitution, written by John Adams, uh, and the right of all of us to seek redress in public and town meetings. And and what limitations, as as a former Cambridge City Councilor for one term, uh, some of the public comment was ready to put you right over the edge, but everybody (laughs) got to speak in the order in which they signed up. You can put some limits, like time limits, and that's, I assume, yes, you reasonable can have, limits, absolutely. right? Absolutely. You can have reasonable time, place, 
and manner restrictions. So you can say you can only speak for three minutes. You just can't silence Only anybody. during the public meeting time. Exactly. What you can't do is to say you're not allowed to say something that's critical of us. You're not allowed to be rude and things like that. And what the court rules, it emphasized this right to assemble as well as the right to free speech. Um, and it arose out of, quote, fierce opposition to the government, even if it was rude, personal, and disrespectful to public figures, as the colonists eventually were to the king and his representatives in Massachusetts. You know, do you think That's we, could, we could transport the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court to Washington and have them kind of <laughs> take, take over? over. The Supreme Court? Yeah. You know, we're just Imagine speaking that. about Charlie Baker. You know, Baker picked every single justice. He did, yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know if any governor has ever done that before. I'm not sure they have of, either. Uh, I mean, we've just had a history of really impressive justices in Massachusetts. Well, you know, and I think it's important for, and this case is so... Um, moving and important because it really shows why we have so much freedom here in Massachusetts relative to many other places. I mean, one is that we have John Adams' written constitution guiding us, which was the basis for the federal constitution, and the other is that we have town meeting and, and local town government as opposed to um, county-based government, which doesn't, in the rest of the country outside of New England, that's what they have. I didn't know that. Yep, and so it's so interesting, and I think that's why our democracy for myriad reasons, but I think those two things are, are John Adams' constitution and town That's government. That's why our democracy what? I think we're much stronger. I think we have we like have four a... Republicans in the whole state. I mean, how is that a strong? <laughs> I'm serious. There are like no Republicans you know on Beacon Hill. The ACLU Hill. is nonpartisan, Jim, but okay, the will fine. of the people can't be denied. Can I ask you, speaking of the First Amendment, and we're glad to see you as happy as you are about this, a call, we were talking at the top of the show mm-hmm. about what you do about the, the, the relentless lying and provocation from people like Tucker Carlson last night, where he sta- mm-hmm. intentional, where he started showing the, uh, the the some of the video given to him by Kevin McCarthy yep. of the January 6th, saying there were sightseers, a couple of bad apples, et cetera, et cetera, kind of thing. A caller said, you know what we need? We need to reinstate the fairness doctrine that was done mm-hmm. away with under Ronald Reagan. Right. And I, without having thought about it all, said something like, I love the idea, but it seems to me there may be some First Amendment implications of the, of the, so fairness, the, right. doctrine. So the fairness doctrine. And I said I'd ask you. So Great, what is good. the... Well, a couple things. First, I, you know, the Fairness Doctrine was worked for a long time. It said that when you show one side, you have to show the other side. And whether we like it or it's constitutional or not, it's not going to happen. Like, it's, it's just that. Well, you know who did it, though, on Fox News? Hmm. Bill O'Reilly, who used to be our radio hmm. colleague. Bill O'Reilly would almost always have somebody. He'd crush him like a bug, and he picked but weak opponents. Right. But he had no, he did. But he had people <laughs> right. on. But he was the outlier. He'd but have so, a mind when right. let him talk. But let's <laughs> assume there was a will to do it. Is it constitutionally permissible? Yeah, no, I think. I mean, for, I don't think it went down because it was unconstitutional. It was just a decision. It was I a think that's right. But, decision. but could it be challenged? I guess I'm saying, if you were, I haven't thought this through at all until yeah, the I woman called. If you force a a network, a a broadcasting entity to have somebody on that they might not otherwise have in the spirit of fairness and equity, is that a violation of their... It might be, and here's the problem. When you have, so we had a lot of issues, um, and there was a lot of self-reflection on the part of the news media by saying we always have to show both sides of the story, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, when one side's lying or making something up, do you actually have to, or can you actually say that's not mm-hmm. true? So there's some false equivalencies mm-hmm. that arise when reporters just become scriveners and make sure everything's mm-hmm. equally treated. So that's sort of the downside of it. I don't know specifically whether it would be unconstitutional. I know that's not why it went down. I know, but I let me find that. out and, and Good, come back we'll talk to about that. it next time you're yeah. here. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> Walgreens, is Walgreens owned by CVS? No, I, I don't think so. Oh, okay. no. All right. Walgreens uh, is said they're not going to sell abortion bills in red states that threaten legal action that's because right. of, of uh, the ruling for the Supreme Court about 
uh, abortion, basically mm -hmm. shutting down Roe v. Wade under the Dobbs decision. Mm -hmm. So what does this mean? So I, I think it's first important to recognize that so this is part of a larger battle that's going on um, by extremists who are opposed to having people get uh, abortion care or reproductive care or gender-affirming care, for that matter. And they're trying to find ways to make it banned nationwide. So what the Supreme Court did in overturning Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision last June was to say that each state gets to decide. Right, so there's no longer a federal constitutional protection, but in states like Massachusetts, it's still protected under our state constitution. By banning this, this drug that's been actually approved 23 years ago, and can I just add, the, the, it is so safe. It's so much safer than Viagra or than Tylenol. Um, by, by many, many uh, amounts, right? So it's just a very safe drug. And it's used not only for abortion care, but for also miscarriage care. Um, and so, be, so what, the, what they've done is the, the anti-abortion extremists they actually opened up a corporation in Amarillo, Texas, so they could sue in Amarillo and get this specific judge, Judge Kesmarek, who has a history of being opposed to uh, reproductive health care access. Um, and, and he could rule any day. And he could rule any day. It's fully brief, so we're waiting for the decision to come down. And a number of things could happen. Um, they could have an injun He could try to issue a nationwide injunction, stopping the FDA from being letting anybody get access to these pills. That would be the worst-case scenario. Or he could do something more limited, saying we're going to impose a lot of restrictions on who can get them. You, know, you have to go to a hospital or you have to do something, even though these this incredibly safe for abortion and miscarriage care. Um, so we're waiting to see what's well, going to happen. Can I stop you for a mm -hmm. second? We asked uh, the other day when Governor Healy was with us, we asked her, what would you do, because you've sworn that you will uphold the right to abortion in our state no matter what, uh, what would you do if uh, this Judge Kaczmarek issues a nationwide injunction, which she has the power to do? And we asked her specifically if she found appealing what Senator Wyden from Oregon said mm -hmm. to Joe Biden, or said indirectly to Joe Biden, that if this court uh, rules, issues a nationwide injunction, you should ignore it. And the only judgment that you should feel obliged to respect is if the Supreme Court were to affirm that. But below the Supreme Court, it's so clearly unconstitutional. Right. The president should, and Governor Hilly didn't want to answer. She said she'll do everything that right. she has to do to protect it. What impact would it have in Massachusetts right. if, should there be a nationwide uh, uh, injunction? Right. So two things. If there's a nationwide injunction, people should understand that abortion is still accessible and legal here in Massachusetts. It just wouldn't be with using the mifepristone. There are other medications. Um, misoprostol is the other one that's often used in conjunction um, that's still available. And then but can be used by itself. It can be yeah. used by itself. But, but it's not as good. And yeah. it's more painful. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like forcing people to have to yeah. suffer. Um, it's really horrifying. And, um, and the, the, this is not a fun thing to go through, to have a, any, a miscarriage any, or to have a medically induced miscarriage. Right, exactly. So It can be scary. It's scary and painful and, and emotionally tough and all these things. Um, so, so one thing is abortion will still be legal here. More, we might have to think about more people. We're already seeing more people coming to Massachusetts mm -hmm. because if you can't get the medication abortion elsewhere, but it also means that wealthier people will get access and poor people who can't afford to travel or take time off sure. work or get child care won't be able to do it. But the other thing legally that's happening is a number of states' attorneys general led by the Washington State Attorney General um, filed a lawsuit actually pushing the, uh, suing the FDA on the other side saying we want to get rid of any restrictions and make it more available. So they've kind of taken the offense as a defense. And I think the idea is to stop what might come out of the Texas judge with a countersuit, That's and that right. would create a conflict which would take it to the Supreme Court, but in the meantime there would be hopefully a stay or a pause 
on making it illegal. So I think that's what's likely to happen. Well, um, out in California, Gavin Newsom has, has said he's going to cut ties. Apparently, uh, their, uh, a lot of their medications through their government mm-hmm. programs are distributed through Walgreens, going to cut ties with Walgreens okay. over this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second thing is um, these Republican attorneys general have sent letters, that's the reason I asked you about CVS, to mm-hmm. other uh, pharmacies, Costco, CVS, Walmart, Walmart, excuse me, Rite Aid, all these other places, Kruger's, Albertsons. Right. Um, threatening them. You, right, threatening right. them. So and if Walgreens knuckled under, can we expect these other places to knuckle well, under I mean, as well? It really puts them into a hard place, right? Because if they're being sued on by one side and then sued by the other side, it's kind of unclear what they should do. We hope that the companies will do the right thing, which is to make this medicine, abortion, uh, abortion medicine available as it is now legally. But it's really hard if the court actually does a nationwide injunction on it it's pretty hard to put them in the situation of having to be the civil disobedience carriers. That right. noted, um, I hope they do, and the ACLU and other civil rights and reproductive justice groups will be there to defend Can them. Can you think of a case uh, uh, where a president has done something like Ron Wyden, the senator from Oregon, is urging Joe Biden to do, which is there's a nationwide injunction uh, uh, issued by a federal judge, lowest level, district right. court, and the president of the United States says, I'm not going to honor that decision. I will yeah. only honor what comes out of the Supreme Court. I think Donald Trump did something like that on the Muslim travel ban, where there was a ban to say you can't, that's illegal, you can't do a Muslim travel mm-hmm. ban, and I'm pretty sure he tried to keep doing it, but you know, that's the one that comes to mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, it seems that uh, Joe Biden, and maybe this is because of the concern about what happens when the national emergency, uh, COVID emergency is over in early May, or a re-election issue, I don't know, but he's morphing into Donald Trump on immigration policy, and yeah. th- that's not an unfair tag, is it? No, it's exactly right. Um, it's incredibly upsetting. So on February 21st, uh, the Biden administration proposed a new rule that will unlawfully, we say, uh, deny asylum to people who are at the border and not let them um, seek asylum when they come in. And the international law is very clear that if someone is fleeing persecution, they have a legitimate fear of persecution, that you have to give them an opportunity to seek asylum in your country. And so this is, um, we'll challenge it. We challenged it when Donald Trump tried to do it. Then he turned around and used Title 42, which was the COVID emergency. Yeah. Um, but we won in the, in the Trump case. The ACLU did. So we're going to have to challenge it again if this was what happens. And it'll come into effect uh, probably in early May. And my understanding, is this the provision which says for you to be able to apply for asylum in the United States, you have to have applied and been denied by countries on your route from Correct. your home country That's to right. the United States? That's what they're saying. And the problem is that the countries that many people come through, they don't have any infrastructure. They don't, they're, they're failed states yeah. often. They don't have places that you can seek asylum from. They don't have the... And so people end up being pushed back across the border into these huge camps where... Many of our clients that we've talked to, you know, they're subject to rape and and robbery and victimization. Uh, Women and children are particularly vulnerable. Um, and so we, and, and so the, they're already fleeing persecution. They get re-traumatized by being pushed back. Um, and most importantly, it's a violation of international human rights law. And we need to make sure that we are the beacon of international human rights law. Well, not the other the thing he's doing, we, you know, it's hard to, to decide what is the cruelest of the cruel things that Donald Trump did. Yeah. I have to say the family detention uh, thing at the border, mm-hmm. to me, probably ranked number one. Yeah. Uh, Trump, uh, Bush, uh, uh, Biden is contemplating 
doing the same thing. Right, holding Embracing. families in detention. And so once again, the ACLU will be there. I mean, this What's is What's their argument for that? What is an argument? You know, we, don't, we aren't hearing. We're, we're, there's a, a, a noticeable lack of communication, shall we say, coming from the federal government around these immigration things. I think what it is, Jim, and I'm sad to say this, is it's incredibly unpopular politically. You know, we, despite the fact that many people say we're a nation of immigrants, um, in fact, there's also a strong... Uh, xenophobic, anti-foreigner streak. I mean, we all remember here in Boston the Irish need not apply stuff, right? So whoever's the latest wave in our country, there's always been a backlash. So I think it's a political move because it's certainly not a legal one. We're talking to uh, Carol Rose from the ACLU. Uh, This uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, very powerful committee in the House, just introduces legislation uh, that would make it easier to ban TikTok uh, from the United States. And I know the ACLU opposes it. So uh, what's your stance? What's your position? Yeah, so so this is the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It was just the committee, so it's not a law yet Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, And it came out of a a Republican out of Texas named Michael McCall, who's the committee chair. And they pushed it through with no advance notice or debate or anything like that and basically said, we're going to ban TikTok. Um, and, and you can't do that because there's a, a law called the Berman Law, the very old law, that says you can't say people can't get books from other countries or they can't uh, you know, read things from other countries or see things from other countries. And whether your platform is a book or a TikTok, the idea that we would ban something because of its originates in another country is very antithetical to free speech principles and to the statutes that are out there. Um, that noted, I mean, I think that a lot of people legitimately have concerns about a lot of these platforms like TikTok because they collect our data and they sell it and they do things like that. And so rather than trying to ban access to various platforms, the right thing to do would be to pass privacy laws, data privacy laws, that would protect all of us as consumers and users of these kinds of things to say, you can have access to it, but that doesn't mean you get to collect my personal information and sell it. Well, that, by the way, that was, my question was going to be, mm-hmm. in limited circumstances, uh, I have to say I'm with the Republicans, uh, in the limited circumstance that I read when I was reading their draft legislation mm-hmm. was where uh, TikTok is uh, providing the information of the Chinese government so they can surveil Correct. United States citizens. So you're saying rather than banning TikTok to achieve that goal, ban the distribution of private information Correct. to begin with and allow TikTok to continue. And whether TikTok's that doing it or Meta is doing it or yeah. Facebook, I mean, whatever the platform, whether it's a Chinese or an American company, because they're all, frankly, global country. Yeah. I mean, they're not really, they're, they're global. Um, you know, if we do that, and we actually have a bill that's going to be coming up in the state legislature here in Massachusetts. To do what? To actually, well, there's two things. We have a Data Privacy Protection Act that would restrict companies from collecting and, and selling our data to other companies. And it's particularly important one is a cell phone data location ban, which means that you can't take um, our cell phone because our cell phones ping wherever we go, right, and we can be tracked. Companies, you can use that for your mapping application, but you can't turn around and then sell that to somebody else. Um, You know, for example, a bounty hunter in Texas looking to find out if somebody goes to an abortion clinic. Um, So I think we have a, a number of good privacy bills, and I'm pretty feeling really good that some of those might pass because we do have a governor who says that she's a consumer uh, affairs supporter. She supports consumer rights, and, and I think it's going to be very popular, bipartisan. We just did a poll recently that showed that it's overwhelmingly popular, so I think it's a good political move, and it's certainly a good civil liberties move. Before we get to our last topic with you, one of our colleagues just posted uh, the following. Lawmakers in the House and the Senate, meeting in Washington, 
uh, reintroduce the facial recognition and biometric technology moratorium act of 2023, which would effectively ban law enforcement use of facial recognition in the United States. Does this have a chance in hell of, and by the way, among the sponsors are, uh, Markey, Warren, and Presley, obviously, yeah. all from Massachusetts. And we also have a state bill that would do the same, that would put a warrant requirement on face um, surveillance technology. Mm -hmm. Just last week, yet a, another person was falsely arrested because of the face surveillance got it wrong. A false match. Um, a false match. So, yeah. And primarily, it, it's really egregious for people of color because yeah. the machines are trained on databases that are more white people faces, so they're more accurate than they are on people of color. So we're really seeing a... a the problems of this kind of face recognition um, technology. And there was a committee that just came out with wonderful recommendations at the end of the last session. And I mean, it had the ACLU's, it had the state police, it wow. had then Attorney General's office, uh, Maura Healy's office, all saying that we should adopt this warrant requirement. So we're hoping the state legislature here will take it up very quickly, and that'll help then give momentum to the federal bill that you're talking about. We're talking to Carol Rose from the ACLU. Jenny uh, <clears throat> McDonald just had a piece in The Globe talking about uh, Boston's elected officials texting each other and the Globe's efforts to try to get text messages, particularly those that were exchanged um, between January 20th and 20, 22nd. They wanted to um, uh, get some of the mayor's, Mayor Wu's text messages. And we've talked a lot about this with Moore Healy. She ran in a big, you know, I'm going to be more transparent. So Wu. Ran for governor. Mm -hmm. Wu ran in the same kind of thing. And uh, I think it's fair to say that once they get into office, the, the, they don't quite want to be as transparent as they did when they were running for office. Um, the Globe can't get these. The city apparently says these text records are considered, quote, unquote, transitory, and therefore they don't have to reveal them. I don't think this passes That's not muster. true. So just to be really clear, as a legal matter, um, the public records law is very clear. If it's a work record, it's a work record, whether it's an email or a handwritten letter, or a text message. So, I mean, I think the law is just super clear. And by the way, if the government is trying to investigate, say, a business or someone else and says, we want all your records, they want the text records. So they don't make the exception when they're in, in asking for the records. The exception that we hear is when public officials are being asked for the records. Um, it also isn't just, it didn't, it's not just Mayor Wu. I mean, Mayor Walsh, before her, did the same thing. Remember, people were trying to get text me messages about the 2024 yep. Olympic bid, and, and they didn't have them. Um, we're running into, we have a case we just argued in the federal court earlier this uh, last week, the end of last week, uh, where ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, is saying they can't respond to requests for uh, federal public information requests uh, because they're text messages and they just delete text messages. So, you know, as these platforms change, it's going to be incumbent upon elected officials to recognize the public records law doesn't change depending on the format or the medium that you're using, and they need to come up with ways that do exist to be able to retain Well, these they're never records. going to come up with ways because one of the things we've said this a million times, we are the only state, we, when Todd Wallach, who's now at BUR, was at the Globe, he did this brilliant reporting saying we're the only state out of 50 where the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive branch, the governor, yep. all claim exemption from public records laws. Yep. So why is the legislature that doesn't want itself to be subject to public records laws going to tighten the public records access laws right. that would apply to somebody else? Because they're going to say, why aren't you doing it to yourself? So the nightmare of this, when this story written by this guy McDonald in, yeah. the, in the Globe, is there's no real enforcement mechanism, well, you know, it seems, and, and you know, when it, they deny things, even if it's not even arguably... Uh, 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 in compliance with law on their part. There's nothing... What do you do? Well, I, can, I think it'll be interesting to see, um, 
you know, if the Globe decides to take this to court. They, but that's court what you have to do. You relief. almost have to go and get a Freedom of Information Act to get this information. It's getting much worse. No, but the, wait, mean, wait. They're denying. Uh, the discussion we had with Governor Healy the other day was around her denial of releasing information in response to a freedom of information request from the Boston Globe. So FIAs don't do it either. Well, was it, was it decided? Was it done? No, court... I mean, no one is going to court about it, but they did file an FOIA. Oh, okay. Right? Well, maybe I... the court will agree. But my point, maybe the court will agree if it's not adjudicated maybe. yet. But my point is, it drives me insane. We, were, we had the Michael Cox police commissioner on a, right. a little while ago. And when you call the police about something... Mm-hmm. Many times they just don't call you back, or they won't give you the information, or right. they say, or and this is state government in general in Massachusetts, well, the investigation is pending. The investigation never seems to end, or we can't violate someone's privacy. And, the, and it's got nothing to do with privacy. You're asking questions mm-hmm. that would not reveal anybody's privacy. Government is just getting away with stonewalling the public, and it drives me, as a former reporter, Nuts. Well, I'm glad it does because I think the more outrage that we have, and this is, I've said this before, why the fourth estate, why the media is so important. We have to keep talking about these things. We have to keep telling our elected officials. We expect transparency. Sunlight is the best disinfectant for anything going wrong in the government. And the, if the government has nothing to hide, they should make this available to us. Yeah, but the problem, part of the problem nobody is... Cares. is no, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody well, cares. Nobody cares. Well, you do. It sounds like I do. Wait, I'm in the minority no, the here. And they know they can get away with it. Well, which and is, all the people listening here today, they yeah. care. Yeah. I hope they do. I hope they do. Because if you want to find out something legitimate that happened to you and it involves some government entity... Then you care. Good luck trying right. to get the information. And it, it, they'll charge you. I mean, if you try to get records, they'll say, well, we'll give you the records, but it's going to cost you $2,500 to get the records. I mean, they have all these... St- Somebody's going to do this, Carol. I think you're the person... Well, there were some changes in that on. after Todd Wallach did what he yes, did. Yes, they did. Reporting. And yes, when The Globe wrote that yeah. long series by Todd Wallach about the yep. stonewalling that goes on. Yeah, did he have to split it now? 50-50? What was know. the... What was the Carol's got to go because she's got to look up the Fairness Doctrine. She's got a lot of work to go. So she's got to leave. I want to hear the amazing music that's coming. Well, up stick too. around well, you should, it is because it is going to be fantastic. This is a real, Carol's good to see you. This Thank is you a, uh, Great to a be here. real treat. Uh, we've been speaking with Carol Rose, who's got to work it out for Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union. Up next, we are going to have a special treat at the library. Uh, we are going to hear some unbelievable music just next with Mark and Maggie O'Connor. You've probably heard of them. They're performing at the winery soon, but we're going to get a preview. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. We are broadcasting live at the Boston Public Library, streaming on YouTube.com slash GBH News and Facebook.com slash GBH News. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews and facebook.com slash gbhnews. As you know, every Friday we have live music. Well, today is not Friday. A special treat here at the BPL on a Tuesday, live music. We're joined now by Mark and Maggie O'Connor, both Grammy winners, by the way. They'll be performing tomorrow night at City Winery Boston. You can get tickets at citywinery.com slash Boston. I hear it's a great venue. And ordinarily, we'd talk to the players before, but we didn't want to wait. So here they are, Mark and Maggie O'Connor doing Fiddling Around.
Yes. Mark and Maggie O'Connor doing Fiddle Around. Join us, if you would, you two, and bring your fiddles with you. That was absolutely that fantastic. Was we were looking at you, listening to you all morning, and we're so thrilled to have you with us today. And I was reading that the, the, you just brought the actual uh, copy of your book, Mark O'Connor, Crossing Bridges, that you wrote about your kind of autobiography of your life. But I was reading the beginning of it where you talked about back in 73, you were only, what, 13 years old, 12 years old? 11. 11 years yeah. old, okay. And you're out in the hallway of an Oregon schoolhouse. And what happened? Well, this fiddling legend was uh, walking my way. I was just a beginner, and had just started the fiddle. And uh, we had heard him um, just a few weeks before at the big national fiddle championships. It was my first time going there. Uh, They hold it in Weezer, Idaho. And uh, I grew up on the north end of Seattle, Washington. And uh, this uh, legendary fiddler was originally from Texas, and he moved up to Washington State to retire. And there he was coming my way, and my mother standing right there, and he started talking to my mom. And then uh, what ended up happening is he took me under his wing and uh, not only taught me violin and fiddle lessons, but he taught me all day long and through the weekends. I became his protege, and I learned all this great fiddle music from this legend, Benny Thomason. And by the way, it took you all the way till 13 until you won the Grandmaster Fiddler <laughs> Championship. So obviously, he did a good job. Maggie, how did you two hook up? Oops, I didn't mean that. <laughs> I actually didn't mean that. How did you, uh, meet. How did you two get... Meet. Meet, thank you very much. How did you get together to be doing well, you this? You know, I felt like I've known Mark uh, for a very long time because he was my musical hero. And Is so, that true? It, oh, yes, absolutely. He's pretty much the reason I'm still playing because... Uh, I, I did classical violin and fiddling, and he showed me that there's a way, before I met him, just his music showed me that there's a way where you can do both and you can create something new with it that's uh, incredibly inspiring. So, um, yeah, I reached out to him after I graduated from Peabody, uh, where I got my classical uh-huh. violin degrees, all the classical stuff, and I wanted to get better at my fiddling, and so I actually wanted to do a fiddle contest, and I thought, well, maybe he'll give me a lesson. Uh, so I can get ready for a fiddle contest. I even got an official grant. You know, it was small, but it, <laughs> I got a grant from and you got him too. to get a lesson. And I got <laughs> so I met him. And I was yeah, your grant, I guess. I never got to do the fiddle contest, but we got married instead. So. Yeah. Well, congratulations <laughs> yeah. to both of you. That was really spectacular. But I mean, you went from that little Oregon schoolhouse to the championship that Jim talked about, and, and you come into contact with all these huge names: Emmy Lou Harris, Dolly Parton, Yo Yo Ma. That we local uh, boy. Local Local boy from Boston, Johnny Cash, James Taylor, another local boy. Yeah. I mean, give us some context of, of what um, you mentioned growing up in Seattle. You talk about it in your book. But, but there's, there's, there's the classical violin that you were just talking about. Yeah. And there's fiddling. And there's kind of where the twain meets. Tell us about that. Well, there was a significant project that I wrote music for, with, uh, for Yo-Yo Ma. And actually, James Taylor was on one of those albums, uh, Appalachian Waltz. And, um, and that was the album, I think, that really inspired Maggie, my wife, yeah. um, uh, when she was a lot younger, when that came out in the 90s. And um, it, it was really something um, else. I mean, it was uh, bringing the, the fiddling, American fiddling musical language into a classical music setting where Yo-Yo Ma took his cello and we met, you know, halfway in between. And we, we created this new American classical music that... Um, it really became one of the, the biggest projects I've ever, I've ever composed for. 
You know, Maggie, one of the things, Marjorie and I were talking before you got here and uh, talking about the fiddle, and I think the conventional wisdom that I subscribe to is the fiddle was not sort of a Northeast kind of thing. And then we listed in our minds all of the people who've been on our show, culminating with you two, who played the fiddle, and we realized, obviously, this is a spreading phenomenon. Is that, I mean, you're going to say yes, obviously, but it is, isn't it? It's no longer like a geographically limited kind of deal. Absolutely. And, you know, the history is so incredibly rich, um, the, the American history of the violin and its journey from, you know, I mean, it's an Italian instrument. And then we have, you know, the Celtic fiddlers that brought over they a were lot here of their, last week, their actually. jigs and yeah. reels and and then you had the um, African-American enslaved people that also picked up the fiddle and helped create the hoedown and the spirituals and ragtime. And so all these incredible styles that have emerged he- right here in America, the melting pot. So why would you never have the fiddle off that you're supposed to have with this guy when you met him? <laughs> what happened? I mean, well, we're w- still doing it. We just did it, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of doing it, before we talk a little bit about your performance tomorrow, it's tomorrow night, right, at the City Winery? Right, tomorrow night. You're playing again for us. I hate to keep running you back and forth, yeah. but I'm really into the instrument and the sound. What are you playing for us this time, you two? Well, we've got some new music that we're also going to add. Um, our concert is a retrospective of um, the music that I've learned uh, when I was a kid growing up, learning from the American music legends in the 70s. But we've got a few new songs that we're just going to be releasing this spring, and we, we'd like to do one of them. I'm going to grab the guitar. Great. My story is also about my guitar playing. Yeah, think? I know. You think he can play the fiddle, and then he plays the guitar. And, <laughs> and the mandolin, and the yes. banjo, and the dobro. Is dobro, is that, did I pronounce that right? That's it. Yeah. Is that a kind of guitar thing, or what is it? Yeah, resonator guitar. You play with a slide. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are you playing by yourself this time and leaving her ear, or what are you doing? Maggie's going to be featured on this one. She's going to sing a little bit, too. Oh, fabulous. Great. So here they are. Mark and Maggie O'Connor again. Is this Spice of Life you're doing? Yeah, this is a new song that I've written for us for a new, a new project, Spice of Life. Spice of Life. Here they are again, and the Mark book, and Maggie O'Connor. And, and the book that I mentioned before, Which is just the out, by the way. just out. Mark O'Connor, Crossing Bridges, My Journey from Child Prodigy to Fiddler Who Dared the World. And uh, guess who we have? Some very impressive people have who blurred this be? book in the back. John Williams, called the famed conductor of the Boston Pops for years and years and years, a musical as well as an orthopedic orthopedic miracle. I don't know why he said orthopedic miracle. Winton Marsalis, a national treasure, they say. Yo-Yo Ma. How about James Taylor? James Taylor. Read James Taylor's quote quote on the back of the book. There's something about that guy's touch. I think he is to music what Muhammad Ali is to boxing. So go ahead, Muhammad Ali. Give us a little twirl here. Spice of life. (laughs) So walking the woods with old Mother Nature, the sound of the breeze blowing through the tall trees, the creek down below, singing songs I remember from childhood dates with my mama and me. It's the gait of my horse as I sway in the saddle, the power that I feel when I give him the reins, the pounding of the hooves as he's climbing the hillside, full speed ahead, and he never complains. It's a movie that makes me cry like a baby The ache in my throat if I hold it inside The effort that it takes to fight my emotions Relief that I feel when I break down and cry It's the spice of life that 
of the pegs, turning them to perfection, the push of the bow in a gentle straight line, the student is discovering, he's hearing that rhythm, how it all feels when he gets it right, it's the trophies that he won for being a winner, his medals and his photos hanging high on the wall, he cannot remember the dates or how many, just something he did, it was nothing at all, it's the And makes it worth living every mile I drive down the wide open road Is the sound of black tile Bumps and vibrations The music I hear on my radio With the spice of life And makes it worth living every mile I drive down life's open road Is the sound of black tile Bumps and vibrations The music I hear on my radio Come back one more time. But I want to say again, you know, before me tomorrow night at the City Winery, and you can get tickets at city, citywinery.com slash Boston. You know, Maggie, uh, Mark told us, you know, he, he grew up in Seattle, and we heard about the hallway in the school, and we also read, well, you had kind of a tough childhood, a little bullying going on. You had to wait a long time for your parents to get you um, a, 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 an instrument. You started the violin at seven, but how did you get, I mean, obviously you can sing as well. So how did this happen for you? Mom and dad help you out? Are they yeah. musicians or what? Well, I was basically immediately in a family band. So <laughs> yeah? I, yes. Um, so that was not a choice, but I got to choose what instrument I would play. So uh, Why'd you pick that instrument? So we had... Because um, you wanted to challenge Mark? Is that what it was? <laughs> I don't well, know, you know who this guy is yet, but I know I want to challenge him. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is there is a connection to Mark because... Um, so my dad was in a band in Florida. We moved to Georgia, and he ha- didn't have his band anymore. So there was a fiddle player in the band, mm. a really great family friend. And I wanted to be like her. And it's funny because we're, we're still great friends, and she told me she was trying to be like Mark. So when you said family band, (laughs) what do you mean? Your mother and father and your siblings were in a band together. So it was my dad and my brother and me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And my mom was like, she put helped drive us all the lessons and and all that. And you also talk about the O'Connor method of violin uh, teaching. What's that? I've heard of the, what's the Suzuki method or something like that. What's the O'Connor method? Well, this is, uh, this is to, um, kind of, uh, (laughs) maybe replace the Suzuki method using American music. Um, there was something that I thought was really missing in violin education, especially young kids playing, 
And it was the creativity part of it that was completely missing. And I talk a lot about that in my memoir, about the seeds of creativity were planted in my little young life. I mean, even though I was growing up in a dysfunctional family, alcoholic father, my mother dying of cancer, um, it was the music that really saved me, that actually uh, provided a pathway, an escape out of my you know, rough childhood, being bullied at school, for instance. Um, so years later, um, I decided to author a method so kids can learn how to play the violin, but using American music, the rich cultural diversity and racial diversity of our music, including African-American music, which is so important and, and should be taught in schools, um, if, whether, wherever violin is being taught, I feel. Um, the music from the different eras, you know, 400 years of American string playing uh, through fiddling and violin playing. I call it the American violin. Well, you know, having had a few people around my house trying to learn the violin can be very painful to listen to somebody learning the <laughs> violin. It's not like the piano where you could sit down, you play a note, the note, unless the piano is out of tune, or even the guitar would maybe be a little bit easier. But the violin, you've got to make the sound yourself. Well, you know what's been great, too? We put on string camps with his method, and the repertoire is so beautiful that so many parents will come up to me and say, I actually enjoy listening That's good. to my, my child <laughs> practice. I love the songs. I don't get sick of them. By the yeah. way, the memoir that Mark is talking about is called Crossing Bridges, My Journey from Child Prodigy to Fiddler who dared the world. So you've played like every kind of venue. How many libraries have you played before, Mark? This is amazing. Is we this were, an this amazing so place? Cool. Yeah. We love this. Um, I actually talk about in the book early on, one of my first little tours in Seattle was uh, the public libraries. Is that so? Yeah, an auto harp player and me when I was 11 years old, my first gig. So this is like returning, like back to the old days. Well, you're going to play one more selection. Before you do, Maggie, what what are you doing tomorrow night at City Winery? If people come to see you, what do they get? We're going to get a little bit of everything. I mean, there's so many styles you can play on this instrument. So I think there's even some Cajun fiddling. Bluegrass. Um, and believe it or not, I'm going to play the spoons. You are? Spoons? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. This is a multi-talented woman here playing right. the spoons. You know, you know, one last thing before you guys <laughs> go play. Any, any good stories about any of the, that you can share with us from your book? Any good anecdotes about any of the people that people know? You know, Yo-Yo Ma locally, oh James gosh. Taylor locally, Conrad Twitty. I think I saw his picture in there. Two of your pictures, Johnny Cash. I mean, you've got, you've got all the famous people there. Well, folks should know that uh, my last teacher when I was 17, 18 years old was the great jazz violinist Stefan Grappelli. And he took me under his wing and mentored me, taught me, and I toured with him. Is he French? And, and he... he's from Paris, France. Yeah, okay. But he played American jazz on his violin. And um, so I auditioned for his group on guitar, made it in, and he discovered that I also played violin at the first rehearsal. And then we started playing two violins together. So playing with Maggie today just brings me back to those great memories of playing with Stefan all the way to Carnegie Hall. So my story oh goes my from, gosh. from uh, the Grand Ole Opry debut when I was 12 years old, Roy Cuff putting me on stage, to Merle Haggard introducing me for a command performance in front of uh, President Ronald Reagan in the, in the 80s, and then Carnegie Hall. Uh, Seth and Grappelli playing twin violins. With Next him. interview you do, people are going to say, what are Jim and Marjorie really like? I mean, what are, <laughs> maybe not. Okay, okay, what are you playing for your final piece? You've been very generous with us today. What's the final piece? Well, thank you. Uh, we just, so to kick off this memoir, we, we went back to the Grand Ole Opry and reprised the very first tune I played on the Grand Ole Opry called Faded Love, a song by Bob Wills. 
And so, and I was 12 years old and played that, so we're going to do oh our duet rendition of Faded Love. Fabulous. Mark and Maggie O'Connor tomorrow night at the City Winery, citywinery.com slash Boston to get tickets. Faded Love is what you're going to hear from this twosome right about now. Totally beautiful. That was that gorgeous. Was great. Thank you so Thank much you so for much. being here. That was Mark and Maggie O'Connor. They're going to be great. performing tomorrow night at City Winery Boston. You can get tickets at citywinery.com slash Boston. Thank you very much Thanks. for coming in. That a was lot. a real great. wonderful tweet. 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 Treat. Marriage is what brings us together. together. Thank you. Coming, <laughs> coming up next, CNN's John King, Back to the Real World, discusses the latest political headlines out of D.C. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews and facebook.com slash gbhnews. We're joined now on Zoom by CNN's John King, their chief national correspondent, host of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays at noon. Hello, John King. And a man after that last segment with zero musical ability. <laughs> Make they that two of us, my friend. Yeah, I, I mean, they were just amazing. We were so thrilled to have a great. chance to have uh, Mark and Maggie O'Connor with us. But getting back to the depressing events that are happening in, in, in D.C. Um, well, this wasn't in D.C. I guess this was in New York City. That's where Fox News is based. Uh, after getting in trouble in the in, in a, and there's a lawsuit, Dominion, the voting machine company, is filing against Fox News for knowingly uh, slandering them and saying that their voting machines were not working well enough, and that was uh, the reason the election was was um, skewed against President Trump, even though. The Fox News, according to inside messages that they exchanged with her, they knew that the election wasn't skewed and that Fox Dominion had nothing to do with it. Tucker Carlson last night continued to say what I think are untruths about the January 6th investigation, uh, John King. He's playing this video he got from the Speaker of the House, and he's making it seem as though it was just a bunch of sightseers with a few bad apples in the group. What are, what are we supposed to do with that? Uh, right. Think about if you looked out the window at the Boston Public Library and there was a big crash, you know, on Boylston Street out there uh, and you showed the video of the 10 minutes of traffic beforehand and the 10 minutes of traffic after. And you said, hey, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Uh, that, that's what Tucker Carlson uh, did last night. He said that uh, it was mostly peaceful. Uh, they were mostly there as tourists and some people, a few people committed vandalism. Uh, I would just say this, uh, especially to those who. Um, lean Republican or are Republican, and to those who watch that programming, they are lying to you. Uh, and why are they lying to you? Uh, because he's a conspiracy theorist who helped Donald Trump spread the big election lie. And if you're built on a lie, you have to keep lying, uh, is my take on this. Uh, look, we all saw what happened that day. Uh, whatever your politics are, your eyes did not lie. Uh, they breached the barriers. They broke into the Capitol. They hurt hurt police officers. They hurt people in the building. And again, it's, it's, this is a tough one, Jim and Marjorie, you know this well, because Fox and the mega media empire have spent years saying, don't believe Jim and Marjorie, don't believe John King. They're from the lamestream you know, media. Right. So I would just say, uh, trust your own eyes, uh, number one, to anyone listening. Trust your own eyes. Go back and look at what happened. Sure. Did, did did dozens of people enter the Capitol thinking they were going to protest outside the House chamber, you know, because they falsely believed Donald Trump won and they just wanted to protest and scream and they saw it was happening and they left? Absolutely. Of course. There were dozens of people who realized, I want no part of this. Uh, but many stayed. The Justice Department has charged a thousand people. A third of them, just shy of a third of them, have been charged with either interfering or fighting or hurting police officers or people who worked in the Capitol complex. Uh, and again, don't believe us. Uh, a host of Republican senators today, including the former governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney, who called it dangerous and destructive, uh, what Tucker Carlson did last night. It's just, it is wrong to whitewash history, whatever the event, and that's what he's trying to do. You know, uh, John, it, it appears, uh, based on at least early polls, that the primary challenge that uh, Donald Trump has to worry about in terms of getting the Republican nomination is from Ron DeSantis. And I was saying to Marjorie this morning, I'm embarrassed that I don't know. What does he say about the 2020 election? And what does he say about January 6th? He, he tries to, uh, to downplay these issues. He says he wasn't in Washington on January 6th. Um, and one of the things he will, what, what he does is like his state is one of three states that just pulled out of this group called 
uh, Eric. Nobody knows what that is. It's a consortium of the states that double check and triple check voter rolls so that Jim Browdy can't vote in Massachusetts uh -huh. and New Hampshire and Indiana and Florida. Uh, they share this information. So Florida just pulled out of it because they say that's part of, you know, the woke big left somehow, you know, it's a it's an organization that Democrats and Republicans have enjoyed for years because it helps them. It, it, it helps them, you know, use technology and use other means to pair your voter rolls. Um, he has created in the state of Florida, uh, you know, a so, quote unquote election integrity task force, right? A separate law enforcement right. division to look at elections. So that's the way that the people who, you know, the people who don't want to say Donald Trump won in a landslide and Ron DeSantis does not say that, uh, but they don't want to offend the Trump base. They try to straddle by doing these other things. Um, Nikki Haley, for example, the former governor of South Carolina, says she's the next generation and she's new and different. But at her first two events in South Carolina and in New Hampshire, she was introduced by election deniers. How can you be new if you are holding on to the falsehood of the past, which is unfortunately still a defining organizing principle, rallying cry of today's Republican Party? So I don't understand how, uh, for whether it's Haley or DeSantis or whoever gets in the race on the Republican side, obviously wants to beat Trump but you don't want to alienate Trump's voters. It's one thing to hold a press conference and ignore a question or say something ridiculous like I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened on January 6th. When they're in a debate and a decent moderator asks them the question, was the election stolen in 2020 or not, which is an article of faith if you're a Trump supporter, what do you guess they say? I can't wait uh, to <laughs> see them on the debate stage. I cannot wait. The first one is in August. Uh, it's going to be hosted by Fox because that's what the RNC wants, and that's mm -hmm. fine. Uh, there are some perfectly capable people there at Fox, are. and hopefully they, do, hopefully they do their job right, and they ask those questions. Uh, they ask those questions. You'll notice in, in Donald Trump's mostly full of 23-plus, 24-plus lies, uh, almost two-hour CPAC speech over the weekend, Donald Trump said Republicans need to vote early and vote by mail. Uh, <laughs> that's so even great. He, that even is great. He, even he has come around... That's on this idea that he mocked and belittled and said was corrupt for years. Now, he didn't also say, and by the way, I'm sorry, I actually lost. Uh, he, he didn't say that part. Uh, so I, I do think this has become a defining untruth of the Republican Party, just like January 6th being a, you know, not that big of a deal has become a defining untruth of the Republican Party. Um, Donald Trump lost and the Republican in 2020, and then the Republicans did not do anywhere near as well as they thought they were going to do in 2022, in part because the American people have common sense, Democrats, Republicans, independents, who won't buy that. And, and if you continue to lie to me about that, why should I trust you about anything else? So I do think this is a defining challenge for the Republican field, the entire field. Um, and I'm fascinated to see it as can you really straddle that? Can you try, because if you're not Trump, everybody else in the race right now, uh, if you know, I'm counting Haley's in the race and I count DeSantis is in the race, even though he hasn't declared uh -huh. yet, they're trying to be Trump light. Or in DeSantis's case, he's trying to say, you know, I'm a doer. Trump's a talker. He talks about all this stuff. Look at what I've done in Florida. I actually do it, which is an interesting mm -hmm. contrast. And they're the two leading candidates right now. But can you then win the suburbs? Can you win independence if you continue to embrace lies? You know, um, I, that's one of the defining challenges. John, one more debate question I hadn't thought of until we started talking about the primary debate, the first uh, Republican one, as you said, in August. Is there a decent possibility if Trump is the nominee or maybe if any, whoever is the Republican nominee, that there'll be no presidential debates this round? I do think that's possible uh, because he has, you know, uh, 
treated with scorn, the Commission on Presidential right. Debates, uh, which, which look, any, any legacy institution should constantly be open to reforms and new ways of doing things. Uh, but I know the people on the Commission of Presidential Debates. They, they mean well. Are they perfect? Of course not. So should they engage with Trump if there's a way to, okay, can we, uh -huh. what, what are your concerns? Can we actually credibly have a conversation about them? But he has used it again as it's part of the woke establishment or the Republicans on it or rhinos, as Trump says, Republican in name only. So he uses it at a, as a pinata. So I think it's possible. I also think it's a legitimate question, uh, Jim and Marjorie, as to, you know, how many debates is President Biden willing to do? If you're at this point yeah, where, you know, point. his age is going to his age is going to be an issue. Um, you know, can he prove the critics and the skeptics wrong? We'll see. That's what that's what long campaigns are for. Uh, but you can see his staff also saying, you know, how many of these do we want to do? Because that is that's a risky area for any politician. We're talking to John King from CNN. Uh, John King, Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, which is testifying, or maybe he still is, in front of Congress, and, uh, and says that Congress has to raise the debt ceiling or there's going to be a catastrophe. The head economist at Moody's, uh, Mark Zandi, uh, was predicting a 7 million person job loss if we default on the debt. You know, people are predicting a catastrophe if we default on the debt. So w what's Congress going to do about this, do you think? So, again, you have Jerome Powell, Republican pedigree, um, still serving in the Biden administration, not a partisan guy, but he just comes out of the Republican uh, history, uh, warning that this is disastrous. Mark Zandi, who's one of the people I trust more than anybody, just a straight shooter, crunches the numbers, gives his analysis of it from Moody's, um, saying this would be a disaster. Um, you would think that adults would then say, why don't we sit down as early as possible and let's not even get close to the cliff. Let's just get this done beforehand. Um, the town I work in uh, and worked in for a very long time is not doing that at the moment uh, because they're in this stare down. Biden says the Republicans should put in writing. They say they want to cut spending as part of any debt ceiling deal. Uh, well, you know, Biden says he'll only do that. He won't. He says he won't do it as one thing, but he's willing to say, let's raise the debt ceiling clean and have a separate conversation simultaneously about some spending cuts. But you go first and tell me what you'll cut. The Republicans have not been willing to do that. Uh, and Speaker McCarthy is saying Biden should get back at the negotiating table. And the president says, first, show me what you want to cut. The, the president is releasing his budget this week. He wrote an op-ed today about his ideas to strengthen Medicare. They include raising taxes, Medicare taxes, uh, on people who make more than $400,000 a year. So the president is putting some specifics, some stuff in writing, policy in writing. And the challenge is, will the Republicans do the same? But to the idea that this cliff is out there somewhere late May, early June, um, I suspect we're going to be Thelma and Louise, and they're going to be racing for the cliff. And the question is, can they hit the brakes and start talking in time? You know, speaking of the Medicare op-ed that was in the New York Times from uh, President uh, Biden, and as you say, uh, raising taxes on the uh, uh, people making more than four hundred grand, which has been his cutoff on any tax policy. Theoretically, I think he said keeping Medicare solvent until 2050. It's pretty obvious based on a State of the Union speech and this, at least to me, that he is going to glom onto this Medicare and Social Security thing using Rick Scott's outlying position on both of those things. That we should start from scratch, everything be sunset, etc. This is uh, assuming he runs. And I'm still not convinced he's running, but I guess I'm in a minority. Uh, th these are the centerpieces that he will protect and strengthen those two wildly popular programs while those guys will put them at risk. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I think it's 100% fair, 1,000% fair. I think you see the president right now dealing with some policy questions that are also political issues, political imperatives for his campaign. Uh, they're trying to get a coherent immigration policy in place, including bringing back some Trump and Obama 
uh, possibilities of detaining families, migrant families, if they come across the border illegally. Uh, the left doesn't like that. You saw the reversal of fortune on the D.C. crime bill, the president not will it, being willing to be labeled weak on crime. Yeah. You see the progressives don't like that. And, and I think on this issue as well, the president is trying to get to a place on Medicare and Social Security saying, I'm the responsible person in the room. You people, you've all paid into this. I'm not going not only am I not going to cut it, I'm trying to do things to strengthen it. Uh, look, who are the most reliable voters in the United States? Older people. They continue to be uh, older people. You know, and, and there's a there's a grow. The growing piece of the electorate is the younger electorate. And the president believes uh, on issues like climate, on issues like tolerance, on issues like tone, um, that he's you know, he's in better shape there. Uh, but the Medicare and Social Security is a place when Republicans do well. Uh, they overperform among older voters. That's part of it. And it's, it's been a problem for Democrats in recent years. And the president sees an opportunity uh, to try to, you know, uh, improve his foundation there. You know, uh, was it David Axelrod? Some chief advisor or president said a couple of years ago, the toughest thing in the world is to be a staff person for a president and go in and tell him no about something. Are there Democrats that are talking to Joe Biden about what appears to be a concern about his candidacy, or do you not do that to a sitting president? No, I, I think, look, the, he's, he's a voracious consumer of media, um, which is a good thing. Presidents should pay attention to what's going on around them. Uh, and, um, and, and he also, you know, all, pre- all presidents, Democrats and Republicans say, oh, I don't really pay any attention to the polls, which, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, he, he's, he's, aware, he's aware of the significant doubts in his own party and in the broader American electorate about this. He keeps saying, watch me. Uh, my colleague Arlette Sines just had a very long interview with the first lady where she says full speed ahead and she mocked mm-hmm. Nikki Haley's idea of a competency test. I- I'm with you, Jim, is that I, I still think there's a slight possibility um, that he pulls back. Um, but I think, you know, knowing him and the resilience and the, the Irish stubborn pride mm-hmm. that he has, how long he has fought to get this job, um, all systems point to go. Does that mean there aren't people who ask him, are you sure or are you aware of this, this criticism, sir? He, he's well aware of it, and he's determined to prove that, you know, that he's up to this. Um, and he's been counted out many, many, many times. So whatever you think of Joe Biden, I always remember when we were kids that the old toy Weebles, Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Um, you know, that has been Joe Biden, uh, especially in recent years. where when, when he looks weakest is when he tends to rebound. He believes his Ukraine performance uh, is a big thing to run for re-election as a global leader. He hopes, and Jerome Powell's talking about this a little bit today, that there's a soft landing, not a recession, yeah. and the economy is in good shape, and he has an economic platform to run on. Are there going to be questions about his age? And look, this we don't have COVID anymore. The candidates are going to have to prove themselves out traveling around the country. We have COVID, yeah. but not like we used to. But he's going to have to run what is a grueling thing, a presidential campaign. Uh, so we'll see. You know, we're almost out of time, John, but there's growing concern as well about the strength of Kamala Harris as a vice president, especially people are concerned about Joe Biden's age. There was a piece I read somewhere, I forget now, uh, that was saying that maybe he could have the uh, go back to what they used to do, which is have the convention decide the vice president. I, I suspect that would be near impossible. But I do wonder about that. Uh, this is a look. Look, do I think Kamala Harris has grown as much politically as she's had the time to grow in the administration? I think that's a fair question. But you can get on the Internet and look back and, you know, uh, should Reagan dump Bush? Should Bush jump, dump Cheney? Should Obama dump Biden? Uh, should, should Trump dump Pence? Uh, this is a recurring theme in American politics when we're between campaigns and political journalists don't have enough to write about. So, John, before you go, I assume as probably the biggest Red Sox fan on the planet, you <laughs> conclude that since there's 7-0 in spring training, they'll obviously go undefeated this season. Is that correct? 
Uh, undefeated might be a stretch. Probably 155 and seven or something like that. That's what Look, I Chris, Chris Sale's arm is still attached after pitching. So that, that's <laughs> to that skinny little body of his. We need to fix the Celtics first, Jim. One thing at a time. One thing at a time. John King, great to talk to you as well. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Thank Take you care very guys. much, Thanks. John King. We've been speaking with CNN's chief national correspondent, John King, who was host of Inside Politics, which you can see every weekday at noon on, of course, CNN. Okay. Up next, apparently we Americans are the butt of many Europeans' jokes, poking fun at our obsession with ice. But has our craze for cool drinks finally gone a step too far? I, I, I didn't know about this craze, Jim, but it, it seems a little over the top to me, but we'll find out what people think. Go for them. We're going to open the lines to ask you about ice. Why is it fancy now? You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7. The number is 877-301-8970. If you'd like to tell us about your ice fixations, that's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mardrigan, Jim Browdy, live at the library, streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews and facebook.com slash gbhnews. We're ending the show with a topic that apparently is near and dear to all Americans, ice. A New York Times piece out today asked the question, is ice the height of domestic luxury? Since the late 1800s, I learned, Americans have been obsessed with ice water, as documented by Mark Twain in the Times, saying, quote, there is but a single specialty with us, only one thing that can be called by the wide name American. A century and a half later, we've taken it to new levels, as Marjorie said, larger cubes, fancier molds, and infusion cubes with flowers that can make or break a cocktail. Lines are open. We're asking you about whether you are ice-obsessed. Do you ask for extra ice in your Dunkin' cold brew, or do you opt for a more European lifestyle, forsaking ice altogether and going for lukewarm, I don't know, swill? And why does every, everything we do in this country have to be so extra? The number is 877-301-8970. The question on the table is your relationship to the ice cube and to ice in this country. And you said before we were discussing this, you like crushed ice. You know what's wrong with crushed ice? It melts into the drink. Right. And it dilutes whatever it is you're drinking. Well, that's drinking. true. But if you pour a really uh, strong drink, you might want a little mm. crushed ice in there to dilute it a little bit. Mm. I, but I had no idea, Jim, that this had taken this is crazy to take it over the country. Apparently, all around America, I missed it, but apparently all around America people are doing is they're freezing little pieces of fruit inside of their ice that. cubes. They're buying these specialty ice, ice molds so they can have ice shaped like... Uh, 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 little round, sh- round shapes, rectangle shapes. Uh, all... You didn't know this until this morning? Did you? Yes. You did? And you don't know about um, uh, making ice cubes out of whatever the drink is you're going to put them in so when they do melt, they don't dilute the drink? You I, did that not, I did not know that. Not. Tiny rectangles, ice, tiny rectangles, Jim. Spheres, heart-shaped ice. And then the colorful ice, like I just said, they have... the. Cubes the size of ring boxes filled with slices of orange and okay, lime. Yeah, fine. Or pink, pink bricks for blended fruit ice for smoothies. I mean, we get, too, we get too much time on our hands is all I can say, Jim. And people, all these people make, look at these. Look at the flowers You don't have to the hold ice. up. It's a radio what do you show. Do Why don't you hold up show flower? to them? 
That's right. There's the flower. Did anybody see? Anybody eyes. care? See Nobody you cares. You can't see. It's too far away. Nobody cares. What do you do with the flower? Do you eat the flower eat after the, flower, the ice melts? Yeah. Eat the flower. I mean, I just think that things people can oh get carried God. away. I know you like all these foodie things. No, actually, and- I don't. As a matter of fact, Marjorie, last night I was at a bar. Mm-hmm. I asked for a, uh, a, a, a you know carbonated water. Yep. And oh, wow. Whatever. Bartender was so glad to see you. No, I was Jim. having a beer, and I, I wanted a little water at the end of the uh-huh. thing. And he delivered it to me with ice in it. You know what I did? I asked him to take it back and take the ice out. Oh, really? Because I drink uh, seltzer and other carbonated Jim, beverages at a, room temperature. That was a bold move. It's more European than me, is what I'm trying to say. You know what I have done? I have people do. They put fruit. They put fruit mm-hmm. like they freeze. Um, they soak fruit Did in I vodka. Say this? Oh, in vodka. Yes. Oh, oh. Blueberries, cantaloupe in the summertime. I thought you didn't know anything about this. I know about the frozen vodka. I bet you uh, do. I know about that. Okay, eight seven seven three zero one eight nine seven zero. There used to be like a bar made of ice over in the South End somewhere, but nobody wanted to go there. You know why? Oh, that's right. You went into ice hots kind of that's thing. That's right. Ice because it was it, cold. No, because you were freezing inside oh, the were. bar. It didn't do that well. By the way, do you know when I went to China the first time that uh, how they serve beer? Room temperature. And it well, takes a lot of getting used to, yeah, by the in, way. Yeah, in some European countries, I haven't been for a while, but when I did go, the milk would be warm, Room temperature, which yeah. I really didn't like at all. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't think we should spend this much time worrying about our ice cubes. Well, why are we doing you that, ask then? Me, because you wanted to do it. That was your it. idea. And so we're doing this ridiculous mm-hmm. story Thank about you. people obsessed ice with ice. Okay, Nick from West Hartford. Are you obsessed with ice? Um, I am not. You're not. Personally. So uh-huh. why are you bothering I, us, I, then? I can't. <laughs> Oh, I'm bothering you because I was a barista down by the garden for many years. Oh. And the obsession with ice that I saw is something I can't personally relate to. Um, <laughs> just in the middle of the winter, people cannot have anything but an ice cold brew. It's just they will not entertain the idea of a hot coffee sometimes. And it baffles me to this day. On the flip side of that, I have family in England, and I... Warm temperature beer is something that is so beyond me. So yeah, me too. The last people I want to hear judge our fixation on ice, even as someone who doesn't like it. I don't want people with warm beer telling me what temperature. Boy, Nick, you're an angry man. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> Thank you for your uh, call. We appreciate your personal experience as a barista there. Some of these cocktails with the ice that's the same make of I just the, said that. You they are pretty. The cube of the same they thing. They are pretty. That the, it's going in the drink. They, yeah, I'm... Oh, here's from Caitlin and Clinton. She says she may have to go have a C-section again just for the ice chips <laughs> at the hospital. She's got a good point. Any woman in labor knows. They put it on your tongue or something? No, because you can't eat anything. Oh. And, you're, and you're really thirsty and you're really hungry. But they give you these little crushed ice chips, and boy, it's like mana from heaven. Colin from South Boston, thank Hi, you for Colin. calling. Hi, Colin. How are you? Hey, hey, I'm fantastic. Good. I'm so glad you asked about this. Good. Ice is really a fascination with me. Yeah. So I grew up in a childhood where both my parents chewed ice, mm. and it drove me insane. <laughs> Drives me insane. Too. Ice. I know yeah. many can relate to it. Many probably do it. So I actually was anti-ice for a very long time, wow. mainly because of the health benefits of hot drinks. But the big cube renaissance we have experienced, especially in the cocktail uh, field, has definitely been something I appreciate because – a nice old-fashioned with a big old cube. It's not going to dilute as much. And, you know, you see a lot of decadence in these cubes. For example, Putt Shack has their own ice cube mold with their logo embedded wow. in it. Wow, that's Talk pretty good. Wow. Beautiful stuff. By the way, I'm so glad you called to add that to the discussion. Are you not into the big cube either that he's talking about? Hello? Big cube. Big cube. 
I don't even know. It feels like the whole glass, essentially, and it melts much more slowly, as Colin said. Can you describe it better than I am, Colin? So I think you get variations, but the notion is, instead of having three small cubes that are going to dilute your drink, one will take up about the same space if you look at, you know, the volume, how it shakes Uh out, and it's not going to water down the drink. Especially for people, I think, who lean more towards your whiskeys and bourbons. Yeah. You don't want any dilution. Maybe a vodka or a gin. I could see it, but for, for the whiskey drinkers and the old fashioners out there, you don't want a watery, watery cocktail. Colin, that was a fabulous call. Can, do you understand what he's talking I understand about? What you're, it's You've never seen a big ice cube I, in a well, drink. Well, I was thinking, how do you drink it? It makes it a little bit difficult. You drink to around drink the edges. Drink around the edges, I guess. And your know. nose. The only problem is your nose hits the big cube. <laughs> And so you know what they sell with the big cubes? Nose guards. Oh. Have you seen those? No. It's a little tiny thing you put on your end of your nose. Keep it warm when you're so drinking with very, a big cube. You look By very the way, attractive in the bar. In all seriousness, while you raise an issue, the big cube is a great development of like the last 10 years in this country. Yeah. Okay. It's really great. Okay. It looks great and it, it fits the moment. You I know, would I say. always thought you wanted the three cubes because if you're drinking straight scotch or straight whiskey, you might want to dilute it a little bit. You, you know might what I mean? not want to dilute or it Or you also. might want to, so you're still in a hard, uh, vertical position when you're leaving You know what I had for the first time last night in addition to my so- soda water? You ever had teeling Irish whiskey? I have. I had to be carried to my car. I had like <laughs> two sips, literally, and I was a goner. Chat on the road. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're talking about Marjorie's favorite topic, ice. Hello? Hi. Um, hi, can you hear me? Yes. I believe so. Okay, great. Um, I've got two things. One, so I know we can overdo it with, with ice and get, like, overly fancy and unnecessary. Yes. Yeah. But one thing that I haven't seen talked about enough is frozen drinks like like slushies, right? Oh, Where it's uh-huh. like granules of ice. That stuff is amazing. So that's that's one big plus for ice. Yeah, but don't you find that these and slushies give you? Hey, hey, Chad, hold on. Don't they give you a headache? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, fine. But other so, than that, so the thing the thing is, you don't drink it too fast, and if you do get that headache, you put your tongue on the roof of your mouth, and it stops it. It does. Wow. It Wait, does, yeah. you got to put it a little bit far back, but if you put it on the roof of your mouth, it stops brain freeze. Wow, I, I'm hoping I'm going to get a headache soon so I can try that. Chet, that is fabulous. Thank you for your contribution to the discussion. Uh, ice coffee, coffee ice cubes are the best, says Erica in the car. How many times have I said this? Yeah. You make the ice cube out of the thing that's a drink, so when it, it keeps it cold and when it melts, it doesn't dilute the drink. And maybe I'm missing a phenomenon, Jim, that I should investigate. Have you ever had, I'm sorry to dwell on what Colin said. Have you ever, you've never had a large ice cube in a drink? No. Never? No. Have you I've, ever seen a large ice cube I don't drink? think so. No, I haven't. I mean, I, I'm just not traveling in the same... Well, you're a serious drinker, chic, though. I don't really get... No, it's not A serious drinker. Listen, not, listen to you. Are you a serious drinker? Uh, no, I, mean, I wouldn't not say I'm a serious drinker, Jim. You always try to turn me into some I'm not kind at of all. I'm just saying what is here. true, actually. Leslie from Storborough? We don't know where you're from, but Leslie, hi. Hi, I'm from South Dartmouth. Oh, South, South Dartmouth. Dartmouth. That's close. Thank you for yeah. calling. Love okay. South Dartmouth. Hi. Marjorie got a, an honorary degree from a law school in South Dartmouth, and it closed down for good yeah, the next week. Next is day. that true? It's very sad. That is true. <laughs> I didn't even get the degree in the mail. The place already closed. <laughs> but go ahead. It's Hi, still, Leslie. It's still work, so. Okay, well, when I was a teenager, I on my, on my first job, other than babysitting, I worked in a fast food place, or, oh. you know, kind of like a greasy food. And the owner was really smart, and he would tell me, fill the glass with ice. And uh, that, that was because he said it's cheaper than the beverage. Right. 
So it's not luxurious. It's it's economic. And I don't love to have my drinks full of ice. When I go to a restaurant, I'll say, give me three ice cubes. Well, Leslie. It's cold. It's winter. Leslie, do you know what I used to do when I drank ice? I don't use ice in almost anything anymore. I would ask for a separate cup of ice. And so I didn't have the problem that your boss was letting you know about. Do you know what I mean? Well, you are smart. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you kindly. They do That's very much, sweet of you. Yeah, if you get an iced coffee, which I almost never do, but if no. you do, they put much too much ice in much there. Much too much. Yeah, That's you what Leslie's talking about. Exactly. I've done that. Ask them without the ice, please, because you don't want it to, especially if you have it in the summertime, yeah. and it does dilute it really quickly. Let me ask you something I've never asked you before. Do you think they should have stayed open long enough to have sent you the honorary degree? <laughs> Rather, so I go to South Dartmouth. It was no one believed you. UMass Dartmouth Law School, right? Was that what it was called? I don't remember or what it was South called. Mass, I think it might have been Southeast Southern Massachusetts Mass, or whatever. something like that. Margaret gets an honorary degree. Honorary degree. I Place go, shuts so right I can down. applaud at the event. Mm-hmm. That was on like a Tuesday, and Friday they were gone. They were gone. <laughs> no record of the school ever having been there. <laughs> Nothing. I tell no people, degree. like I said, they say, well, where's your, where's your plaque? And I do not sadly have the plaque. It's in it was the one and done. In South that Darf. was the one thing I ever got, and it's all over. <laughs> Carol in the car, thank you for calling. That's not true. You got Boston Magazine, Quipster of the Year. Quipster of the Year. It you wasn't did. Boston Magazine. It was uh, yes, it was. Improper Bostonian. Oh, it was. Quipster right. of the Year. That's Carol right. on a car. Hi. Hi there. How you doing? Excellent. Uh, okay. Uh, so, ice. All I can say is during my second pregnancy in 14 months, I chewed ice the entire time. Really? And I did get a divorce after that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the ice chewing was about, Carol? I, I have no idea. They say something about not having enough iron in your blood or some silly oh, thing like that. Somebody just texted yeah, about that, too. What does ice do for iron? I don't know, but somebody said that, that well, they did know. it for iron deficiency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah evidently, I have no idea. All I know is that child is still the weirdest of my three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he or she is glad to hear that. Carol, thank you for the call. You know the caller mentioned Anemic. Somebody says it's anemic. There's a texture who said the same thing. I used to lo- I loved to chew ice, and I was told it was because I was anemic, which ended up being Oh, true. so it doesn't fix the problem. It, it creates a greater desire to have ice or wa- water. Yeah, you chew the ice Liquid. because you're trying to compensate for your anemic condition. Did you ever know anybody like the guy who called a few minutes ago who said his parents chewed ice? It's one of the worst sounds no. like ever, no. ever. It's fun to give a dog an ice cube, though, see them chase around, oh, I the, love that. Chase that around the floor. Thing. Scott in Boston. They like the big ice cubes, by the way, the ones they do? you've never seen. Okay. Yeah, they do. Uh, Scott from Boston, thank you for calling. You have 30 seconds, Scott. Take it away. I, uh, sorry, it's scratch, like uh, what bad cats do. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, so... I'm, I'm a, a cocktail drinker, and I like whiskey stones, the metal ice cubes. Oh, basically, yeah. They're reusable, right? That, that, you know, Marjorie, so you don't have to worry about apparently it. Apparently, never heard oh, of it. Oh, oh. So the, Frozen so the, metal. So the metal protects the, uh, it doesn't make the, it doesn't dilute the drink. Right, it's metal. That's pretty that clever. Is, that is correct. It's what? metal, it gets cold. It gets cold. Wait a second, yeah. is your name so Scratch? It is Scratch, Jim. You know who, you, you, we've met. We I have? Mean, we're not friends, but we've. Yeah, we have. I'm, I'm a theater guy. Oh, uh, I do so, know yeah. you, actually. I do, hey, Scratch, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well, Jim. Well, it's good. Hey, Scratch, where do you, where you get the, where you get the frozen Scratch. metal ice cubes? You can get them anywhere. Hardware anywhere? stores. Oh, okay. Liquor stores, anywhere. Yeah, All any, right. Any, any cocktail supply place. Scratch, thanks for calling in. We appreciate it. Well, there you go. Another trend I've missed out on, Jim. It just passed me by. I'm not sure I'm inspired to get on board, but what the heck. Clearly, you're on board. Thank Paul you very much. Paul from Worcester says, I guess Marjorie's serious drinking starts weekdays at 2.01. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go have a martini right after the show. 
Thank you for listening to another Thank edition you. of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast. Tune in tomorrow. Paul, I think we got the picture that we was looking for. Took the picture today. Oh, of Seabiscuit, yes, of Secretariat. Uh, of Secretariat. Yeah, we finally got the picture, Paul, so I'm going to send it to you. Yeah. Anyway, keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by two members of Mayor Wu's Reparations Task Force, oh, Joseph Feaster and Carrie Mays, also Harvard's Juliet Kayyem, GBH Executive Arcelor, Jared Bowen, and naturalist Cy Montgomery, if you want to lower your blood pressure, tune in for her because she's so soothing to talk so to. Great. Plus, GBH's Liz Nieslaus on Everett School Superintendent's battle with the mayor. Some charges of racism over there. They're not the first ones. Charges of more racism. That's yeah. right. Not the first ones coming out of the, the city yeah. of Everett. I want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aiden Conley, Hannah Loss, Nicole Garcia, our engineer, John LeClaw Parker, our executive producer, Jane Bologna, and special thanks to the BPL team, Angelica Marrero, Cy Patel, Evelyn Brito, and Steve Baracci. Jim, what's... Uh... You're supposed to thank people for coming. Oh, and thank you very much for people thank that Thank you all for coming. We really Public appreciate Library. it. Thank you very much. I keep asking you what's on TV, but you're not on TV anymore. No, I don't so do that I'm... anymore. <laughs> That's right, Why don't you, don't. you rub it in a little bit? <laughs> I am Jim Browder. <laughs> I'm Marjorie Egan. Jesus. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you can tune in tomorrow. Meanwhile, have a great day. Bye.